You're listening to the Endless Pursuit Podcast, where we talk about all things hunting and the great outdoors. Let's get into it. No, I prefer it's go time. All right, excited about tonight because this is probably the person we've been asked from our listeners to get on the most, which I get because I've been a massive fan over the years and he's 10 years in and I have learnt a lot. Uh, so maybe I'll blame him that I haven't got a deer yet. I don't know, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, you need a better teacher. <laughs> Excuses. <laughs> maybe. So tonight we have Profty from Aussie Bush Harvest. Welcome, mate. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Honoured to be had. It's good to be talking to you. Appreciate your time. Mate, um, I've been a fan for a while and your YouTube is is gold. I'm just going to say that. And 10 years is a massive effort, mate. Con- congrats on a hitting that milestone. But I tell you what, I was sitting there today with the twins watching it and some of your – mate, you've got some crackers out there. That red stag, oh, my God. Like that's that's what I dream about. And to see you get it in that environment in public land, but not just that, your passion and enthusiasm is just, it makes me excited. I want to get out there. So, mate, I hope you're planning on doing this for a lot longer. I'm just going to say that. Oh, for the rest of my life. But, um, you know, because I do, I do live by myself in a little cabin up here in the, in the hills. So it, it's, that's very nice of you to say. Big cheers. I feel encouraged by that. But yeah, no, um, it's it's you know, it's not like it's a choice to kind of oh maybe I'll just let it go. It's like no, I'm in for life. You know, you get to a certain point in your life where you know what you like and you know what you believe in and you know what you're passionate about. And needless to say, I, I, I hate using terms like fork in the road, but um, it's not a now or never scenario. But there's never been a better time for us to um, dig our heels in right now and keep everything in a positive trajectory. It's not just about fighting. It's not about just drawing a line in the sand and, and getting really cranky. Even though I have that instinct to do that every single day when I wake up or read something online, you know, um, I can get as pissed off as anyone else. But we have so much opportunity in this country. This is the best country in the world to be a hunter. And I say that objectively. I don't say that with bias because um, if you want to just take it straight off the ground, I mean, you guys know this, but the fact that we can feel like doing it one day and then on that day, the opportunity is there. That's beyond spoiled, you know. There's a, a huge... doesn't exist overseas. Well, no, no, it doesn't. And um, I do sometimes wonder if that's why there's this instinct for some people to take it for granted. This whole idea of us being the lucky country doesn't mean that uh, we're the most grateful country, but I wish we were. It's, um, it's a practice thing. I know that I will die with opportunities that I could have chased in this country ahead of me. I, I, I want to die with, with that because... If there's, there's no cap on this, really. You know, if I just use New South Wales alone as my hunting and fishing and wild harvest future, that's still on par with Alaskans in terms of the ability to actually genuinely subsist from our environment. Do you know what I mean? So I, I'm starting to rant, but it's my instinct. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine, mate. That's what you're here for. We've got you on to talk. Matt spoke earlier about your YouTube channel, and I saw the photo we actually put up today of him, man sitting with his kids, dad sitting and watching it. How did the channel start? Did it come from a, a point of, hey, I'm doing some pretty cool stuff, I want to show it, or hey, I'm coming, I'm doing some cool stuff, I just want to document it for myself? No, it was it was very much small scale and I had no I had no inkling early on that it would um become a thing. But one thing that was um the, the base reason I started putting a few up was because 
there was a few online internet forums where people were getting quite active and wanting just to share hunts. And um, I just thought that would be a more interesting way than just a few trophy shots. Because that's one thing for me that uh, early on, I, I needed to kind of break through this idea that all I'd ever see as a representation of big game hunting was someone holding a set of antlers, which, you know, there's photos on the wall in the next room of me doing just that with my friends, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But it was just, it was just a bit too superficial just to take that one thing when, for me, it's almost the anticlimactic moment. It's when you've, um, you've let go of, uh, you know, an obsessive quest, a, um, an endless pursuit, not to brand you guys too much, but, um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, um, it, it's, so it was by choosing video to do that, I thought, oh, well, this just gives it a little bit more texture. But I was also just, because I was quite young when I started this and I had no, um, except for a few friends who were keen on it with me as well, there was no family heritage of this at all. There was no, um, it was quite an independent desire that came out of just thinking about it a lot and, um, and also wanting to build a very self-sufficient lifestyle for myself that was based around living in the bush. You know, it's um, things like gardening and fishing are equally as important as the pigs and the deer, for example, it's a holistic approach. Yeah, so I wanted to try and feed all that kind of stuff into the videos. But when I thought, all right, how do I get hunting when I don't have rural access to properties and things like that? And this was only three years, three or four years when I left high school after the whole R license program had initiated. And, you know, the first initiation was only like five forests, which, you know, to be honest, was a pretty sensible idea to give it a test run, a trial run, prove the method and then, and then increase it. So by the time I just left high school, it was the first year that public land had just been unleashed on New South Wales like that. And as far as I understand, that's the only public land hunting program of its kind in the 21st century that's come from nothing to something. And even from a young age, I'm like, hang on, is, is this as good as I think it is? I'm like, Fuck here it is. It is. But no one's talking about it. It's like, from the earliest times, like you'd even you know go and introduce yourself to different hunting clubs. I won't name the clubs, but you immediately come up against a bit of a brick wall of people who are just a little cagey, wanting you to kind of prove yourself to them or come under a wing. When I thought, well, but hang on, I, I don't want to hunt the way you guys are hunting. I just want to hunt the way I want to hunt, and I want to you know answer the desires and the needs that I had come up with myself. And I'm like, well, I have the platform here. It looks like I'm going to be doing this alone. It looks like I'm going to just be getting that art license and reading books, online, uh, US hunting forums and things like that. I, I drew a lot from the US hunting scene because the art license program, the whole state forest hunting thing, to me looked like that kind of stereotype of the US hunt because apart from the fact that half the ground was radiata pine and people wearing orange hats, there was deer season at the time and yeah, we don't have that anymore and I, I, I dare say we won't ever again. But um. It was something I could really buy into. It's like, oh, yeah, I have another foreign culture to draw on and not exactly mimic, but um, learn from. there was just a lot of 101 and 102 to, to, to grow from. And anytime I was chucking this stuff into the internet, I was just getting nothing about what we had. I'm like, this is as amazing as it is. And there's, well, no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to talk about it. It's like, well, someone's got to put a video up. And I did. And I think the early ones were particularly impressive, but it was just something. And I just... Maybe being a bit I don't know, isolated or probably self-centered, I just didn't realize that there was a lot of other people with the same craving and desire and, and, and want for an access to that program as I had. And they were looking for the same thing. So as soon as something was up on the internet, um, I guess it was just the first cab off the rank on, on the Google search and it just got a little bit of traction from there, which I, I probably didn't know how to handle early on, but 
just kind of kept ticking away with it and then it became a bit of a thing. So that was a that was a start, but there was certainly no um line in the sand. It's like this is where the project starts. It's like, well, I'll put this up and just see see where it goes and 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 the clear needs like the fact that no one had really done any 101 how-to stuff. You know, you could find I was just reading this before you um for those who are listening not watching, I've got Secrets of the Sand by Errol Mason in my hand. There was, you know, you could get literature like that, but it's still a lot of stuff would go to the 103, 104 level before it just told people how to tie their shoelaces, like sometimes literally, and um, you know, the basics of handling a firearm, how to sharpen a knife and all that kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like those needs were there and had to be addressed and weren't being addressed, so I was just like in a lucky enough position to be able to fill them with something, not, not, not necessarily the answer to that need, but just something. Have you got a video in mind that maybe was more successful than you thought it would be or, or one that's done particularly well out of the others or do you not track that sort of stuff? Um, no, I, I, I don't play the numbers game too much. But, um, oh, no, there was one. It was I, I knocked over a couple of pigs in a state forest. And one thing that is a, a consistent theme I've noticed is people just love seeing pigs get shot. But it's, 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 it's a real draw card for a lot of people. And I wonder what that is. And, but, well, no, actually, I don't wonder because I think wild pig, wild swine, uh, probably one of the most prevalent game species on the planet in terms of their distribution everywhere. You know, that's, that's, that would be every continent bar Antarctica, almost all the Pacific Islands and the like, whether it was deliberately, you know, well, I think most of it was, you know, some form of European settlement might be dropping them off, but it's like every single culture in the world has just taken with gusto to chasing pigs around, um, whether it started with sticks and dogs, bows and arrows, all the way up to shooting them now. Um, it seems to really, it's a hook, it's a draw card. People seem to love it. Do you think it's because the meat's so accessible? So, like, we were speaking about this the other day and it was we, – we did a bit on – and you're a keen fisherman and uh, I love you chasing trout out there because, you know, that's that's something I, I really want to get into and I just wish they were closer for us so I could get out there. But They're closer than you realise, by the way. Well, I know they're down in the highlands, but for me, probably about an hour any which way for me. But, um, you know, it's, with, a, with a young family, sometimes that hour makes it a little tricky. But Understood, it's. Yep. Definitely not unachievable, but do you think it's because you go to a co-op and you see the whole fish just sitting there and we don't see the animal carcasses hanging anymore and that sort of people have that view, but they go into a supermarket and they're always seeing pork and pork so prevalent, whereas venison isn't. So when people look at deer and pig, I'm with you, I think pig is probably more, not sought after is not the word, but chased. Does that make sense? A little bit, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I guess we'll, we'll just had Christmas, and you'll you'll see ham on the bone and all that kind of stuff. I guess what a lot of this kind of distills down to that, yeah. If, if people saw Bambi hanging up in the shops, they might get upset. We can we can break through that. That's an easy layer to break through. And I think people are a lot of people, particularly since the whole COVID nonsense and all that, got um you know got time to thinking, and they they want to be confronted. The amount of times I've had people who just say, "We just want to see you kill an animal, and you can you know show us how to chop it up and." Just to like have one little forward step towards that experience. I think for a lot of people, it's them, you know, they, they might have considered vegetarianism or something like that. And I've got no problem with people doing that. That's their business. But um, they wanted that little bit of a dip their toe in, try before they buy, or they feel like if they can see it and just be confronted by it and accept it, in their mind, some kind of moral permission to eat meat. And um, I, I do get that. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of just presenting people with a watch me kill something kind of thing I like to invest in people who are going to be long-term hunters. It's just funny. There is a yearning for people to kind of just be more connected to the real. I think a lot of people know that that veneer is there and they're sick of it. It's just this, the way that the whole Western society has kind of been coming to a bit of a pinch point and it gets to a point where that kind of starts to fracture and people 
just want to be grounded. I think the, the craving for nature and the craving for authenticity is within absolutely everyone. And it might just be a matter of just stripping back layers and stuff like that. Yeah. Two things you just mentioned, and I think it was a really good example of it. You called it a veneer, like that top crust layer that we've got to break through. But you also said it's easy to break through. Do you think that it's easy to break through en masse or it's more of a one-on-one situation and these people you're watching your video are, you know, that's a personal interaction with you watching your video versus down at the shops, these people that are on top of that veneer en masse and just mass consuming meat but not understanding the whole situation. Do you think it's easy, like one person at a time is the way or it's easier to do this sort of thing that we're doing or in public or... Or, you know, try and reach the masses a little bit easier. What's happening here is um, it can be, if it gets the right momentum, an, an exponential process. I think, unfortunately, I, know I won't open the can of worms for society's broader values, but a lot of people might have an idea in the back of their head, but they just look side to side and think, oh, it's just, it's a step too far in terms of how I'm going to go into an uncomfortable place by putting myself out on a limb to disagree with my peers or things like that. I think when it comes to the whole meat thing is like there's plenty of people who yeah, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't watch an animal cop around or um, get the knife or do the whole abattoir experience, merrily eat meat along. And, you know, it's, it's the biggest thing that frustrates me because, yeah, it feels like a hypocrisy. But, I mean, that's how I was raised. That's how most people were raised and it takes a step forward. When you have a, a momentum of interest, I think like there's a classic example of this and that's good old Steve Rinella in the States. What he's achieved over there and is constantly achieving is in my mind a constant exponential rise. Obviously, now it's at a point where it's very strategic. It's not just present the philosophies and people rally around it. They have to kind of take control of um, you know the more specific context points that they're trying to to work on. And that's when it's it's about a hunting culture maturing over there as well. I mean, it's, and 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 evolving and changing just like ours is. But obviously, I think when it comes to cultural development, where it's, it just shocks me, but we're just so far, far back. We're so close to the 101 and 102 with this kind of stuff. And um, and a lot of it's just because, yeah, I don't know, it's just that many people haven't been talking about it. I think our hunting community has had a long-term problem, maybe with a bit of a hangover from the old Port Arthur thing, where it's just, if we just stay a little bit quiet and hush-hush, they won't ask too many questions kind of thing. It's like, I don't share that point of view at all. I want people to ask as many questions as they can. And, and I think most of them, most of us would have a pretty good answer to. And um, whether it has to take a bit of time for us to find the right articulation, because I think it's very important. It only takes one person to represent us wrong. And, that's, and I'm not talking about some dickhead poacher misbehaving. I'm talking about someone getting loud, getting on a microphone and saying things that like, I mean, the one thing that, that makes me cringe every time, you know, you get see someone from our side, so to speak, start saying, hey, they're the bloody greens and the bloody aunties and this and that. And then they'll go on about their argument for hunting. And I'm like, wow, you've had 10 minutes, buddy, and you have not said the word meat or food once and it's just like I'm crying deep inside but it's it's funny because you think well what's the origin of hunting from it's absolute the inception of humanity it was it's only ever been about food until recent years when uh, the whole concept of wildlife management became a thing I mean sure I guess, I guess it got to the point where at some stage a shepherd killed a wolf not because he was hungry but because he wanted to protect his flock and that's when the branch in human beings pursuit of animals became more complex and started changing which is all a very important, beautiful thing. In terms of the, the side of the argument that I, I'm going to just focus on the most myself is, is the harvest side of things. You know, I don't think it, it, it's, it's a combined effort. There's like, I mean, if, if you want to talk to someone about the importance of pest control, I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen Edge of the Outback and plugging through his thermals, like he's the kind of guy who's ripe to kind of talk about that kind of space. And I'm, even though I do plenty of pest control stuff myself, a lot of which doesn't go into the channel because it's, it's just a separate thing. 
you know, I feel like I'm just, I'm always going to be better to try and talk about the meat thing and where that kind of thing felt, you know, genuinely fits into a, a food chain rather than just like a, a tokenistic bit of backstrap once or twice a year because it's like, oh, it's a nice natural novelty. It's like, no, no, I'm, I'm going towards complete food self-sufficiency and P.S. if anyone else is interested. We're one of the few countries in the world where it's absolutely 100% possible. I deviated there. You did a little bit. That's fine. I asked uh, how old you were, I think. <laughs> did you? <laughs> you can guess. No, I didn't. You said a couple of things there that resonate with me, and I think that's probably why I don't know, I connect with your channel and what you do because I think we've got similar values and I, I'm all about the sustainability. And it's when you're talking about the veggies and we are in a country that you can get there yourself, I'm all for that. Like we... We pretty much grow all our own veggies here. It's very rare that we're buying a, a vegetable from the supermarket. And I love that, man. Well done. It's it's great. And that's, you know, why we moved out from sort of inner well, just on the outskirts of the city, but we've moved more semi-rural now. And that was one of the reasons we wanted to grow our kids up and and have that. And and I love it. The little fella gets home from daycare every day and we go out and we pick berries and that's his snack when he gets home. And I think that's so important because a lot of kids don't get to do that. So when you're making the videos, one thing I really like about it and it's a credit to you is that you do so in a, I've touched on your enthusiasm, but it's, it's informative and you're not upsetting people. And, and look, you're always going to upset people, but you're putting yourself out there. You're a genuine character and I think that makes it easier for people to resonate, learn, and even aunties or people that are against it, I think they, when you talk it and explain it and you're respectful, I think you, you're doing this, like our, our community a really good service. And we started the podcast for this is to be informative, but to also say, hey, we want to make sure that we're highlighting our community in the best possible way. And you know, hopefully we do that. I, I think we do a pretty good job of that. But that's that's so important. And I think that, as you said, this evolved the YouTube channel. Was that always a goal to make sure that hunters are in the best light you can portray? Yeah, and because I, I mean, I just didn't wasn't getting enough of that myself. I was found um, constantly left wanting um, anytime I picked up a, a hunting magazine or, or tried to trawl through the internet. But finally, if I'm, I'll just give a shout out to probably my. My favorite YouTuber of all time was a, a Norwegian called Christopher Clausen. I'm not sure if you guys have seen him, but the man is just gold. And um, I used to turn the subtitles off and just enjoy listening to high-pitched Scandinavian <laughs> voice as he was canoeing around <laughs> his lakes and catching small trout. It wasn't, it wasn't about um, – the, the whole trophy thing didn't even seem to manifest that much early on because it was just constant connection to food and because he was actually you know, completely genuinely integrating it all into his diet and Norway looked so damn beautiful. Which, you know, for, for me was just this early kind of just spark thing where the, the whole imagery of hunting in terms of how it was just appealing to me and getting into my, my brain thought was just um, how damn idyllic and peaceful it is just to be out in the bush and interact with nature in that way. And it wasn't too long after that where I realized um, when I started, you know, early adulthood, got a car, started traveling around, I thought I kept outsourcing and looking around the world to see these idyllic, I don't know, homesteading, hunting kind of vibes and realized, no, we've got it here. And as soon as I kind of started making it down to the high country, more Kosciuszko and Northern Victoria, it's just like, oh man, we've actually got it even better. Why aren't we telling people about this? Can we tell like a lot of people about this? I mean, it, to, to this day, it, it absolutely shocks and amazes me. Although I, I'm not necessarily unhappy with it, but I, I'm amazed that Victoria, high country Victoria, isn't just in more people's um, international hunting lexicon. I mean, well, hang on, Dodge, actually, you'd be probably better 
sort of to correct me on that. I mean, when you travel around the world, I mean, and you've hunted America, am I right? You've um, spent a lot of time in New Zealand. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do do people speak about the Samba Deer experience in Victoria as a thing? I mean, people do even know about it, or so they speak about it with some kind of reverence. I mean, how much of Samba hunting internationally is a thing? Can you share anything? About three percent. Uh, yeah, it's low, and so I think the reason though is it's not an animal. So I'll just set the tone a bit more. Yeah, it's not a big thing amongst the masses, but there's a certain sector of guys that it really appeals to okay. because it's hard. Yeah. So it's one of those things you don't do it early on your international career because you want to tick the things off that are. Hey, I'm going to Australia for ten days. I want to come back with six animals. Hmm. Samba's not going to be one of them because you might go there for four trips and not come back with one. Yes. And then what you get, it might be a hind. But these guys that are travelling are generally chasing bone. So, you, you know, that it is one that you need to tick off your SCI, you know, slams and things like that, South Pacific 15s or whatever you're doing. There's all sorts of super slams and micro slams and all sorts of different directions you want to take. For sure. And it is one to tick, but you can tick it in private land on a farm, on a high fence situation. So there's guys that will, you know, end up at Water Valley and shoot one or um, any of the fence situations down there. So, yes, it's on the international scene, but on the later end of people's journeys, when they've done the easy stuff and they're realising that they're, they're into the mountain stuff and they're into the experience, not the not the animal being the outcome. Yes. And I, I'm in a few of those circles, especially online, there's a couple of guys and they just had the big sheep show awards and, Dallas Safari Club and stuff over in the States. And, you know, I see these guys week in, week out. One's going to Ethiopia tomorrow, flies out. And, you know, he may come back empty-handed. He's 100% fine with it. It doesn't worry him. But he's the minority. So I, uh, I, I agree. It is a frontier that I think, especially Americans that want to do over-the-counter elk hunting, they're happy with, you know, hard work and possibility of coming home with nothing. Australia doesn't really set itself up for, for doing it with, you know, struggling to... I guess that's the point I was trying to get at there is that, like, it's, you know, is it about time that we did? And, yeah, as soon as I've said that, I just know, like, I can already feel the kickback. And it's like, yeah, well, but, you know, what, what are you doing to preserve what, what couldn't really get any better? If you've got something at its absolute peak, I mean, I... I actually feel sorry for young people entering the Victorian hunting scene right now because there's lots of them. You know, there'd be heaps of 18, 19 year olds who, whether it be through family or just the ease of the access, uh, are there and they're getting the best world class deer hunting ever. And if, but if that's their base level expectation and they don't realize that the rest, the rest of the world does not get that at all, I just hope it's not something that's, that, that gets taken for granted and then all of a sudden from its peak is like the only way down. That's one thing that can't be let to happen. And it, it it just broadly opens up that whole conversation of, of how much we commercialize deer hunting. And, I, and although it's a separate important thing I'd like to talk about, I don't mean commercializing carcasses for chillers, even though that's something we should be talking about, particularly considering what you guys were talking about recently about the, the federal deer um, five-year plan and all that stuff. Um, what I'm talking about, though, is how much money should deer hunting cost if people love it and want it. And that does start a little bit with, you know, Bringing Americans around to try and shoot a Samba deer potentially. I'd love to see Remy Warren shoot one one day. You know, it's. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, like put it out there for what it is. Like, I actually think he already has. Really? I just don't think it made. I, th- I uh-huh. vaguely remember hearing about it, but don't. I don't think they end up with the footage they wanted. Yeah, right. And it never happened. As Samba hunting plays out sometimes. Yeah. I, 
just yeah, no, no, interesting. Happened, and uh, I know he's done a few secret trips over here, up on Rusa and Chittal and things. You know, getting around pretty low key, and he's just a normal, normal guy that happens to have some fame attached to him. But uh, the cost of deer hunting is an interesting one. That the tricky part with that is, I just don't think we have the setup here at the moment. I mean, we don't even have a guides association properly. So if these people are coming over and just going on their own, then there's the whole risk of getting medivaced out and whatnot. That you know, who who pays for that if you're an international and you've got insurance? There's just that. So then, if they go with a guide, I know a handful of good guides down there. I know two handfuls of not good guides mm-hmm. that are you know probably on property they shouldn't be on and things. So it's just a bit of a loose market, and I I I agree with you. There's a super big hole in the market for that you know that whole area down there. But well, I, I use that as like a bit of a. I hold it in such reverence. I hold Sambadir in such reverence. I hold the opportunity in such reverence. That's my personal bias. But Australia as a whole, and again, I'm going to just keep plugging away. Everyone can disagree. I think Australia has the best hunting in the world. And why are we constantly kind of just groveling from this bottom level kind of, we make a bit of an attempt, but it then just goes back to sitting on the comfy cushion again. Um, It just seems like a really dangerous place for us to dwell. Yeah, I, I know. I'm just pushing everything towards, you know, Right now, we need to advocate for recreational hunting more than ever before. But um, with with some kind of semblance of a plan, I hope I'm getting emotional. I'm taking it that way. It's um, <laughs> yeah, you talk, Matt. No, everything you're saying it's true. We've spoke about it on the podcast so much is that it doesn't matter what country you're in. There's an economic value attached to the animals, and that becomes where they really start to hold value. And I think. That's one thing we can really improve in this country is saying, hey, I'm still baffled why kangaroos are off limits. Like I get that they're native, but that's a, a natural resource on the landscape that why are we protecting them? Mm. Crocodiles, I say it all the time. I love eating crocodile meat. Uh, they are so in plague proportions, but we can't – it's just a relocation. Like it just – for whatever reason, and I think this is where I love the word disconnect and I know you use it, and it's for me, it is it is that disconnect of saying these are a resource, they're food, but the, the, the management, there's so many elements to it, but they also could be this massive economic value that contributes to not only our economy, but we can link it back to conservation accessing more land, accessing, you know, putting better things in place, better training. It's that flow on effect. And I always talk really highly about the North American mm. conservation model. Now, there is ways it could be implemented here. The problem is, is there's no one really talking about it or there's not a big body wanting to do it. And I sometimes feel that's because we're all in our little isolation pockets as either shooting or hunting or pig dogging. No one's got this just broad one where you've got everybody at the table going, hey, for the betterment of everybody, this is where we should be going. And it's a missed opportunity in my eyes. I think that you're right. I think we've got some- For now. For now. I hope it changes. Yeah, I, I really do. I, but we need a body that, I, I don't know, we, we need something there. I know, I know what you mean. And and, and one thing that I, I seems to constantly kind of, there's a lot of big bodies which I'm not particularly uh, happy with, but um, I may- I, I, Shouldn't, I should say what I've done, not what I'm going to do, but um, next week I do plan to actually join an ADA branch. And the only reason I haven't till now is just because of bad experiences with clubs, um, bad experiences with a certain a AA branch, whatever. It's, it's not about the bodies, it's about the people within it. Um, but on that same logic, 
um, if I feel like these places could change or you, you can't just go online like so many bloody people do and just whinge and whinge and whinge to the same people who are whinging about exactly the same shit. It's just so inane and lazy, but ironically still takes a lot of their time and mental energy. So if I'm going to say something like that, well, then it means, well, putting my money where my mouth is, is to buy association membership and be active and maybe be even one of those annoying people. But And, and it's not just about finding like-minded people either. I mean, I, I need to have my points of view challenged on this kind of stuff a lot. I am constantly learning about hunting. I'm constantly... I learned stuff about firearms this last weekend when a very generous bloke who works for one of the bigger firearm companies um, just took me through cleaning a rifle and I realized that I hadn't, for 10 years, hadn't cleaned my rifle properly at all and had a little bit of corrosion in it and he showed me all this kind of stuff. But it's like, well, better late than never to learn. But before I start digressing, just to kind of pick up on a point you were saying before, it's like, yeah, well, why shouldn't we shoot kangaroos? Now, this is why the Victorian duck hunting situation, in my ever so humble opinion, is like the most important domino in the rack right now when it comes to the survival and long-term perpetuation of Australian hunting. And I really, really, really mean that. And the key aspect to it is two words, game and native. It's absolutely essential. And yep, this, this, that kind of opens up a whole bunch of different avenues and whether we call deer game and all that kind of stuff. It's not a separate conversation. What I'm saying is that by saying that we can kill those animals, yeah, part of it's animal management, but the primary reason is because human beings value their meat and the experience. It's like that's us bringing it back to the origins of hunting. That's not us saying that we only have permission to do this in Australia because there's an invasive, invasive species problem. It goes to the fundamental ideology of that. And this is why, you know, reading that deer report the other day, which the only reason I haven't commented on it so far is because I want to digest it properly and make sure that whatever I come up with is part of what other people are talking about too, because you can't just talk about all of it and expect people to listen. You have to be able to hit a couple of key points. And one of these key points that I want to just keep going at is that the origins of hunting, the origins of why hunting is so important to us as people and always has been to humanity until we started getting funny in the head in recent centuries is because those fundamentals have never changed. In my opinion, they are a, um, a birthright to us. And the ducks are just that that last kind of vestige hanging on which proved that you know it's okay for just the base reasons of hunting to have create and maintain a hunting opportunity do you guys know what i mean like it's um it's a cornerstone that's what i'm trying to say one thing i've always said is that and, and i feel some some branches or clubs or when i talk about that they have their viewpoint is if I'm in it for pest shooting. You've got to be careful if you're saying I'm in for pest shooting because when they start to crack out poison and things like that, the pest shooting then starts to really lose weight in the argument because they're saying, well, you can't shoot as many pests as Absolutely. I can poison. So all of a sudden, there becomes a really difficult a, a challenge for you to get that across and validate what you're trying to achieve. I think you're really right, and it's something we probably didn't go into as much detail as I would have liked in that feral deer action yeah, plan. Early days is the 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 yeah we just wanted to get it out there and say hey get get aware like you know we spent as much time as we could on it but it's a it's a damn long document and there's so many things you can talk about but the cultural aspect of hunting is so important and my background is Aboriginal and my ancestors have been doing this I want my kids doing what my ancestors did uh, I I feel I never feel more connected than when I'm in the bush. And yes, I might live in the city. Yes, I might not live like my ancestors did anymore. Yes, I might not follow all the traditions and customs. But 
hunting is something that it just makes you feel one with nature. It makes you feel part of the process. And I say it all the time. I think humans have forgotten that we are part of the ecosystem and we're an apex predator and you can't remove apex predators from the landscape because then it just causes so much chaos with overpopulation and the like. And the benefits are just from mental health, from good food. Like there's just so many things and you're preaching to the choir um, and I'm sure our listeners are feeling the exact same way. No, for sure. But it's very good because you, you, you picked on something really important there and because whether we like it or not, it's, it's, it's always going to be complex and there's multiple things running at the same time, you know. And when I talked about the need to allow a native hunting opportunity for its, you know, hunting's base level needs and all that kind of stuff, I'm just, I'm advocating for one of the fingers that's just, you know, going di- down on the on the graph or the chart because I've got plenty of people these days who are like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm into hunting because I want meat and I respect the animal and I'm like, yes, yes, preach it, keep going, keep going. And um, they're like, so I would only ever go out and kill one because that's the life that I want to respect. And it's like, cool. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, you've gone down that one path and you've ignored in, you know, your responsibilities as, you know, as that apex predator. I mean, actually, funnily enough, just today, an annoying farmer approached me on a fence line that I was spraying for a yarn. I think he just wanted to uh, check out my work. But um, we got yarning, as you do, and he was complaining because this was on, a, on an edge of a plantation and some people had been hunting it. and. He said, yeah, this bloke, he used to come up shooting once a year and, you know, he'd come and get his deer. He'd only bring three bullets with him. And um, I'm like, yeah, righto. You just wanted a bit of venison, did he? He goes, yeah, yeah. What's in, what was in that for me? And I'm like, I said, yeah, no, fair enough, mate. You obviously need some people shooting more pests. And he goes, yeah. He said, but it was, I'll paraphrase him, it, it particularly annoyed him that the guy had come up being very preachy about free-range venison and all that kind of stuff and not even thought about meeting his objectives. And the final thing the farmer said about that was, that animal ate my grass for free, and then he took it for free, took the deer for free. It's like, oh, it's it's like, you know, it's just amazing how many people come fresh into the game and just don't think about that kind of stuff. It's it's something I've always said as well. I get there's been some bad experiences out there for farmers, but there is such an opportunity for them to make money and diversify what they're doing, whether they be raising cattle or having crops and have a secondary income by, you know, hunting leases over in the States. They Now, not everyone can afford it. And we, we've spoken about this previously, saying that some people, they really want the public land side of things is always going to be there. And I think that's great, but, you know, access to free hunting. But there are a lot of people out there mm. that would like to pay and get access to better opportunities because they might not go as often and, and they want to help out a farmer more or whatever it might be. I think we can have this multifaceted approach where everybody can do whatever they want. The farmer could get that help. Like you said, don't just go up and shoot one deer. He wants more. He's losing feed for his cattle or, or it's eating his crops. And there's there was a farmer I was talking to the other week and he was saying that, uh, what do you say? Something like over the space of a week lost something like 40 grand's worth of crops that they planted to deer. And it was like, mate, that's a that's a significant hit. How does he offset that? Is he getting? Is he asking hunters, "Hey, I'll give you access, and it's going to be this much money"? That could work in his favour, but we, for some reason, we don't have that, or we're not looking at it. I'm not opposed to that. I know there's a lot of people out there. What, what are your thoughts about that? I'm 100. There's there's a key word to that, and that's organisation. And you know, anytime there's you know coordination like that needed, it's 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 not just like, "Oh, get one bloke to kind of manage it all." It's like, no, 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 no. It's always more than that. There's always an initial outlay of money. 
from someone, um, normally government, but if it's not government, then it has to be more. It comes from organizations cooperating with each other. Um, only th- I'm just going to go back for one second and just pick on something that you said. Uh, you said like, oh, look, there's public land hunting and we'll always have that. Please don't rest on those laurels. That if we don't stop advocating for it, we can lose that in a heartbeat. And I won't, I won't rest until I make sure it's not that way. But the point is, like, we cannot take that for granted whatsoever. Like, it would not be a, a it would, it would be so easy for any government just to click their fingers and and just sell our pine assets. And if they're just left over with a bunch of native land which they don't see any particular value for, because recreational users, not just hunters, but all forms of hands-on recreational bush users, have not advocated for that. Our native patches of state forest could be turned into national parks in a heartbeat. And you say, oh, that's terrible. It hasn't been managed properly and they don't give parks more money. It's like, yeah, cool. We can win so the cows come home afterwards. At the end of the day, if the government doesn't, doesn't see the value economically and, and culturally and socially for all of these activities, like that, that, that's a very strong base load. So I, I don't consider any of our hunting um, opportunities safe unless we're there actively advocating for it. So to follow on with what you were saying, um, I'll give you an example. I was actually, I think one of the programs that you were talking about envisaging, I have actually been on one back in the game council days. And it was a very good experience because I met a lot of other guys who were like-minded. Some of them I actually kept hunting with for many years. It was a Roosadier shooting program down on one of the coal mine sites, NRE mine inland from Dapto. I'm not sure how it happened, but the fact is that there was more scope within the game council framework that the guys working there could just approach and, and create a lot of more niche hunting opportunities than just the state forest experience. And one of them was like, well, look, there's just this you know, absolute infestation of roots to deer here. Let's just see if we can get some organized shooting. And what they did is set up basically fine five different laneways, some in open areas, some like right in the middle of mining infrastructure, and some just in the bush that was owned by the mine. And had us all in a schedule to turn up there at different times, often in pairs or, or threes where we just go sit in the hide, talk and just keep an eye out on where they could come from. And eventually we all had a bit of a pattern developed about where the deer were coming from and moving to. I'm pretty sure almost everyone in that program got a deer. Um, I got a little rooster hind, uh, the most foul tasting deer I've ever eaten in my life, but I can still tick the rooster box, I guess. <laughs> um, but the point is that that, that that was there and people flocked to that opportunity and that like the, the forests were there like the red stags existed and all that but these guys lived in southern sydney and they might have the odd random day some of them were shift workers and were doing this at like 11 a.m on a tuesday because that's what fitted in people clamored for that that's all i'm trying to say so yes what you're talking about um has huge potential that's one thing i said in the national feral deer action plan was why couldn't you set up laneways and blinds and even bring them in with bait or whatever and have a schedule, have an organization? Mate, if, if someone had that in a national park and said, hey, it's $100 to come out and help out, keep the numbers in check, get meat, I'd, I'd be paying for the experience. Oh, for sure. We don't have any of that. And, and that's one I think that they're missed opportunities and we need to be vocal about it. And you're right. I agree with what you said is that, don't take it for granted because we've got it now, but it's like duck season. It's like bow hunting in South Australia. Yes. We're always going to be under attack, just chipping away and, and small chips and, and just trying to undermine what we're doing and, and what we our values and whatnot. And the other thing is that it's so easy if people do the wrong thing that it gets blown out of proportion. And especially in the world we live in with the media that we live in, they love to sensationalize everything. So it's yeah. on us as hunters to make sure we're 
holding ourselves to that high level of what we expect from us in our community too. Absolutely. And one thing that I've um, very much welcomed in the last 10 years is um, how diverse the hunting community has become. And that's because there's people like, there's, there's an accountant out there in an office who's bored and he switched to, you know, the internet or YouTube on his lunch break and he's seen something that really appeals to him. And um, I don't know why I chose an accountant. I'm just, I've got nothing against accounts. I'm just saying someone who probably <laughs> doesn't um, wear a mining uh, fluoro shirt and live in Ningen. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, A white collar worker. <laughs> a white collar worker. There you go. Um, but someone who, who doesn't spend much time in the bush, but it very much appeals to that person. And that person, and I've got many friends who are very successful hunters just like that, learned everything almost academically from the ground up. They're like, well, what do I need for gear? All right, what, what kind of fitness do I need to develop? Um, let's just start ticking boxes. And, and also, they, they still they go into the forest for their own reasons. Like A lot of those people were completely free of certain cliques that develop around um, an area or a species and things like that. Like They don't know anyone. They don't put their stuff online. They just, they just wanted to shoot a deer one day. And um, there's more people like that who aren't actively engaged in, I don't know, the hunting scene, so to speak. You know, they're not, they're not doing a lot of social media stuff. They're not on forums all the time. They're not eager to put up a picture of themselves on the internet holding a deer's head up. But there are so many people like that. And that's forming a really large, uh, fresh run of, yeah, fre it's fresh blood in our hunting community. And it brings a whole different layer of diversity. It washes away stereotypes. I just think it's fantastic and I, I just kind of want to actively engage in the unlikely hunting types as much as humanly possible. Am I, am I making much sense when I say that? It's been a long day. We're, we're breaking that, that, that old stereotype, but um, they'll still try and pull up that old stereotype quite actively when they want to put hunting down. But it's, it's got to this point where it's so inaccurate, it's ridiculous. But we're just not showing ourselves back. We're not showing how ridiculous it is. And... um yeah, I know that's it's, that's just where everyone needs to kind of take a little bit of small action, just to talk to their neighbours about what they're up to, not um, be afraid at work to mention that they're going deer hunting on that weekend because it's a very normal thing to do. A lot of people might go, "Oh, are you the kind of person who's into deer hunting? I thought you're into yoga." It's like, well, guess what? You can be both. You know what I mean? It's um, yep, yeah. Again, preaching to the choir. Yeah, I want to circle back to your story with the farmer, and he was saying, you know, he ate the grass for free and now you've shot him for free a scenario for you and we briefly mentioned it on a previous chat about are you a better hunter if you walk into a state forest you're a fair way in you know any vehicle you've got enough room in your freezer for one animal or so and there's four that present themselves you shoot one and then the others run away the flip side of that scenario is that you shoot one the other three hang around and then you end up shooting all four but you don't have enough room or the capability to remove those is one better than the other and and i mean i i preface that matt talked about his you know abundance of greenery in his garden and things like that our freezers we don't buy meat so i've got a cool room at home we kill our own animals pigs sheep venison whatnot the only thing we buy is chicken but the you know so i am currently or in the last few years definitely bringing a lot more meat out of the bush than i ever used to but i'm also not afraid to shoot extra animals when needed where some guys, like that guy you just used as your example, took his three bullets, shot one deer. Was he doing good for the overall or was just doing good for himself? What's your opinion on that? Well, that's, that's the perfect kind of fork in the road example, isn't it? Um, for a lot of people, 
it's it's still hard enough to even just get that one deer. You know, it's your first um, first start to things. So the one as opposed to none is is a great step in the right direction. I guess this is a, a great scenario for people who um, have more than a couple under their belt. Um, like to tell people that they are hunters, have access to property as well as hunting public land and all that kind of stuff, and they feel like they're established in their in their position. Now, a lot of people have different points of view, but the points of view it's so context based. But getting hunters to know their contexts very well, I think I'll give you an is is an example where I felt this the other day. I saw someone um post up a picture of them shooting some red deer um in a straight forest. So I'm like, oh, I know that rock. Get away from my rock, you know. Um, and then the guy's like, "Oh, but um, it was lucky, you know. I, I threw a few shots at the other hinds running away too, and um, hopefully the numbers are down a bit." And my first is like, "There's just not that many of them. There's like 40 animals in the whole area, and it gets hunted by over 100 people every year. Like, just, just go away." And but that was my initial gut reaction. But that's that's only my reaction, probably not his, because I guess I've seen that context and, and hunted that area for five or six years, and have come to those conclusions that um, red deer are not impacting the environment in that area. Barely anyone knows that they're there. You know, if you really do knock down those hinds too much, then there won't be much for anyone. You know, I, I do have that point of view in that specific context. There's a patch where I'm going to be hunting fallow this rut. That's right, it's, it's a private property that I've got access to. And they've had more than one request slash demand to sign the signature to a chopper, chopper shoot, and they've said no. Um, who knows where that's going to evolve to? But my only thought there is like, well, cool, I, I don't want to shoot deer and leave them. Is there some kind of middle ground uh, solution? And the solution's easy. It's like, well, cool, I'll start giving away deer. Thankfully, I one way of doing this the other day because I thought, all right, well, how many can I chop up? And, you know, if I feel like going there in summer, like that's a lot of fly-struck animals. It's like, no, no, just gut the animal and then present them the entire carcass. And thankfully, my neighbors don't mind that. There's a few people who uh, clamor for venison a lot from me. And I think they're going to get the whole carcass next time because they don't fully appreciate uh, my butchery time and what three hours of my day means to me. You know what I mean? But I mean, I mind you, just a, a halfway to that is to be able to kind of give people a leg. That way you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. I'll never forget though, this was, I was hunting Samba a lot down in um, western side of the high country in Victoria. And, you know, if I could get a Samba deer every year, I knew that for the second half of the year up into Christmas, I'd be right for meat. You know, there's a lot of meat in the Samba. And, you know, I shoot a lot of hinds down there. Um, but, you know, at least one of them a trip would be good. So I, I had back straps and back legs, and I thought, well, I'll um, I'll leave a leg on a tree, take one leg over my shoulder, and the back straps. It's rough territory, and I'll come back for the other one. And um, I met a friend of mine down the bottom, and he lives down there. And I was like, oh man, it's getting dark, but I, I really want to go back for that other leg, you know. And I feel really bad to waste it. He's like, I don't feel bad. Let me just shoot another one. And I was like, oh, my ethics, <laughs> my morality. It's like, well, no. The context <laughs> down there is that. For me, not to shoot that next one is I'm letting down a lot of locals. I'm letting down a lot of vineyard owners. I'm not taking responsibility for that. And therefore, I am not someone who would have any right to whinge if they pass the choppers over that area. As ineffective as I think chopper shooting is and as um, a mindless waste of money, my point is if I'm not stepping up to take some kind of responsibility, some kind of collective responsibility, playing my part, I have no right to whinge. And there's so many people who... No need to have a crack at people, but there's so many people who have been on the deer scene for a while. I know that they don't shoot anything except a couple of bucks a year off that patch, and they want there to be hundreds of deer in that paddock. And they're the first to complain when an agency goes in and you know takes responsibility for that situation. And the one thing about the complaining is, it's like, well, what what alternative were you presenting 
how many times have you publicly argued your importance as a hunter um, and the importance of these deer as a resource? It's like we we, we have really. I mean, when you read through that um that national deer plan and you, you can get worried about some things, it's like yeah, cool. We could have gotten worried, or we could have just started talking about this a lot, lot, lot earlier. Best plant time to plant an apple tree was twenty years ago, and the second best time is right now. Yeah, interesting with what you just said because there was a um, an executive on one of the governing bodies or for hunting who, uh, when we put out about the feral deer plan and, and whatnot, their response was, "We need to make them a game species again." And I sort of just went, that's the wrong answer from my perspective is I do not feel that. Or that was 10 years ago's answer, you know, yes. when, when they were actually illegal game species. It's like, why weren't we yeah. telling the world why they have to stay that way? Yeah, it's definitely not going to happen now. The The big push is the numbers. As you said, so many people are impacted by them and it depending your locality. And, and this is the problem because there are so many different circumstances and situations that I don't think there just should be one rule. There shouldn't be this blanket yep. rule because you really need to understand and appreciate the context in suburbs, in, you know, on farms. Like there's so many elements that can impact it. And I think the problem with federal plans and things like that is this big blanket approach mm. that may or may not work in certain and specific areas. And that's where you, you sort of need boots on the ground to, to have that nuance in the plan to, to actually work and, and make sure that it's sustainable. It's everybody's happy. And, and that's something we want. Mate, we had a, in one of our previous episodes, we had, we had a listener ask about spots in private land, uh, sorry, public land mm -hmm. in state forests. And is it appropriate to scout when you're not hunting because other people are out there. Now, you are a big public land hunter, a successful one at that. And, and I'm a very big scouter too. Yes. Well, and, and that's what I thought. And that's why I wanted to know your thoughts on it because I, I feel that if you're not out there scouting, then you can't really be as successful. So should you worry about other hunters when you're scouting? I know my opinion is no. I You should be out there. As long as you, you know, make sure you're wearing blaze orange and doing the right thing, not going around you know, blowing horns or having an air horn and pressing that every five seconds. But, you know, I think it is fair game. I mean, to start from the base level is a, a legal context. You have the right to, so therefore do, you know, and that's an important one. And if it's if it's so damn bad, well, then we can make a different rule if we all agree. It's an interesting one. I want to be careful with my response here. I think, again, we can say, oh, it's all context-based. It's like, well, yeah, it is. Size of the land really matters. Um, I think if you're... Matt gave his opinion and my... Opinion was that, uh, yeah, exactly what you said. Legally, it's fine. Morally, I wouldn't particularly do it. And the Matt's original question that he prefaced in that episode was in a balloted area that's currently booked out, but you're in there in the next section or the section after that. No, I'll, it wasn't a balloted area. You brought the ballot in. I meant just a state forest in general. No, actually, and that's what you, I picked. Hey, go back to the you, audio. I think you, you, you bought, no, go yeah. back to it because you targeted ballot because you talked about your you talked about your hog deer experience, but I was talking about state forests in general. Well, a key interjection I'll just throw in here. Like one one thing is that um one reason I might ever consider scouting without a rifle um is because it's a very inappropriate time to hunt. Like if I was going to go hunting tomorrow, anything that I'd shoot um would have flies on it within seconds. Um, the chances of that Animal, if it was taken that far in and taken that far out, uh, you know, harvest, you know, so the carryout was that that lengthy. I just don't see how that meat could survive that well unless you kind of planned it all, you know, really well like that. 
if you want to chuck the whole trophy element into it, which again, you know, if I'm hunting red deer, it's it's very much an element, you know, an, an, an element. Like I do want to make sure that animal is at least in hard velvet. I really like shooting velvet uh, deer. I think they're really cool, but um, it'd be a bit of a waste if it was just going to crumble away. And if you said, oh, I'm only in it for the meat, it's like, well, cool. Why don't you shoot a spiker or a hind and leave that trophy for someone else? You know, respect. That's that kind of speaks again to like, well, if you're going to scout in an area where someone's clearly working and someone's clearly, you know, it's their turn. They were the first to pull up at the end of the fire trail kind of thing. It can kind of go with your selection of animals if you're going to tout certain ethics. And um, I've, I've just noticed it a few times where people are like, oh, I didn't care if it was involved, they've got great meat. It's like, yes, but the spikers and the hinds also have great meat too. So if that's your reason, you don't have to diss someone else's trophy pursuit. You know, um, there's just ways of us just being really intelligent with our context and mindful about things where everyone can have their way. And um, I mean, the one thing that I... I've got to learn about this year, and but it's, it's such an easy accommodation to make is is um, people who are into pig dogging, um, which is almost like 40%, 50% of people with our licenses or who are hunting the forest, like they are the most committed of our hunting community. I want to make sure that I, um, I don't ever exceptionalize them. I just know very little about it. And one plan this year is to make sure that I do learn as much about it as possible and hopefully go out with some people who are willing to have me and Maybe not so much as a participant, but as, as an observer, just so I can learn a lot about it. But by understanding it, because I, I'm not in a position to own dogs, even if I love it, I, I, I won't be in a position to own dogs and do that. That will make me aware if I'm actually impeding on their style of hunting or not, because right now I actually wouldn't know. I wouldn't know if I am or not. And uh, I mean, there's been times where all of a sudden there's a bunch of mastiffs in the gully that I'm hunting. And I'm like, oh, hello, I won't pat you, you know, covered in blood. Um, who owns this dog kind of thing? Um, but I would never even know whether I'm impacting on their style of hunting at all because if I don't understand anything about it. So I guess my, my first gut reaction and the main gut reaction when it comes to that scouting stuff about other people being in the bush is that everyone does have the right to be in the bush and it's not just a legal thing. If you're a horse rider or you're a prospector or you're a fly fisher or whatever you're doing out there, any bush user should never go into the bush thinking, oh, but there's hunters here. Because that fundamentally undermines all the safety principles that we've thrown out there to say, this is why we can do this and this is why it's not inappropriate for us to be here and do this. The more, as soon as people feel unwelcome in those scenarios, it just reinforces every neg- negative stereotype about us. And you know what? I tell you what, even I've had it before where there's like loud dirt bikes charging through areas where you think, how do you even make it through this? This is like a 45 degree angle hillside and it's covered in rocks, but they've made it through and they're having a great time. And you know, you think, Oh, they've ruined everything. You know, there's that many animals that are used to that. And all I had to do was sit down and wait. I mean, I guess I was lying against a tree feeling a little bit sorry for myself and having a cup or something. And then all of a sudden it's like, there's animals, there's deer. They weren't bothered by that at all. That bloke had his fun. He charged up the hill and then I charged around into that deer's shoulder. There's two examples in my life where that's happened. So the moment I get that attitude of like, oh, bugger it, someone else is here. It's like, nah, I, um, my instinct is to, is to reject that. And that's not just an excuse to keep scouting because I'm going to do that anyway. There are a couple of small little forests around the joint where there's random ones where like you can only get one spot or maybe two spots, but if there's enough exclusion zones and there's zero spots until something changes, all that kind of stuff. And um, a few of them about the place are, are definitely worth hunting. And you can think, well, yeah, it would be um, that would just be a context where I could pull up at a road end and see someone bobbing down with an orange hat and think, you know what, I'd be a bit of a bastard if I did this today. I'll... um. I could stay back and use binoculars or I could just leave them be or hang back and wait till they get back to the car and have a conversation with them because they're probably into exactly what I'm, I'm into and 
we would gain from that interaction. It's it's. I don't think it's as easy as just saying, oh, well, this is all common sense based. Like, oh, just read the situation. It's like, no, we, we've all got to understand our situations a bit. There's a lot of nuance and um, tread carefully, tread lightly, as we all should when we're scouting because if you're not treading in carefully and lightly, then you're doing a job of scouting and you're ruining your uh, your rut patch, in my humble opinion. That's what I'm finding a lot at the moment with red deer. That's why I watch them from a distance and don't get amongst their gullies. I agree with what you're saying. And from the scouting perspective, I think, it again, it, there's those contexts. And I like to hunt down south and the, the state forest down south. Now, my closest one is about three and a half hours. Big drive, yep. So if I'm driving down for three and a half hours, I'm generally going to stay there. I'm going to pay money to the um, you know to stay at the local caravan park or a hotel or whatever it might be. And I, if I'm driving down there and I get there and that's going to be my day or two checking cameras or scouting, if I see someone there, I'm sort of like, well – this could be the, the – I could only be here once this month mm. if I stopped. So I think that also needs to be the context too and it's tricky and I get it. You know, I, I don't think anyone should deliberately go out and maybe I'm not clear about that. I don't think anyone should deliberately go out to make another hunter's life harder. Definitely not. No. But I do also feel that scouting is a big part of it and you should be able to do it as well. But as you said, if you're not scouting like you're hunting, you're doing something wrong. So I don't see you impacting too many hunters if you're doing the right thing. So on state forests, yes. Well, mm. I don't know if you heard an episode where we had a listener reach out and said, "Dodge, you're a oh. god extraordinaire." Damien, you've been British Columbia, the US. You've you've been there and, and done a fair bit in your career, but you haven't got a deer in a state forest. Ah, right. You know he hassles me almost religiously. So just, just to check though, Matt, have you shot a deer in a state forest? I haven't even shot a deer, so let's be clear on that. <laughs> no, that's good, that's good. And I cop it from Dodge all the time, which is fine. I've got no issue with it. No, that's good. I could just tell that Dodge is about to cop it and it's like, well, I'm just, just evening up the, the score. That's fine. Well, I don't get much of a chance to do things like this. So Dodge, I didn't even know he went to a state forest to be, to be honest. He was very cagey hey. about this whole process. So uh, the deal was if he wasn't successful he had, he had the opportunity to go for a three-day hunt and if he wasn't successful that he would have to eat something with chili in it because he's not a fan of chili and he's made that clear on on air and and that's where one of our listeners called him out damo shout out and, and great uh, great job uh dodge what happened we've got the state forest guru with us let's let's unpack it and go through it please locations coordinates there's context as you would say firstly what do you clarify as success in a state forest project? Oh, well, that's the most subjective thing ever. Um, <laughs> exactly. What I'm looking for is the answer as to what do I need to say to not You said shoot a deer. I will get a deer on the deck is what you said. Did you enjoy yourself, Dodge? Was it fun? I had a great time. So context, as you've spoken about several times this evening. I did head south. I was not cagey about it. I was... Proper secretive. Right, okay. That's like the next step beyond caging. The only people that knew about it was my daughter and my wife. And I booked three days down in a forest down south. It was three and a half, four hours away. Now, when I say I have never shot a deer in a state forest, I've been to one state forest and hunted with, yeah, what did we do, two days maybe? It was two nights? Yeah, it was two days. You came, yeah, it was. Yeah, late one night. You came late did. the Friday. So we did all day Saturday and I think you did early Sunday right. morning. So I don't I don't have any experience basically. One one time in a state forest. But, yeah, the comment was you claim that you know what you're doing and you shoot all this deer on private property and 
he should be able to get it done. So I thought, look, I'll sneak down there and if it doesn't happen, I don't have to tell anyone and no one will know and I don't have to eat a chilli sandwich. <laughs> so I yeah, snuck on down. Now I got I left late because it's just family and things, but I was supposed to leave. I was going to leave early in the morning and I ended up leaving about midday. So by the time I got down there, actually, has this beautiful hat I'm wearing right now. I had to call into Goulburn because I forgot my blaze because I don't hunt state forest. So I had to call into Goulburn. Shout out to the Goulburn Disposal. Whoa, hold on. Hold on. Okay. Hold on. Did you forget something? You gave me so much crap when I forgot. Yeah, bought it on the way though. Didn't ask someone about it when I got there. So <laughs> shout out to uh, Goulburn Disposal Store. Great little shop in there. Good uh, <laughs> good display of Ridgeline stuff and they've just got their ammo license. So anyone in Goulburn, head down there and buy some ammo. But sorted me out for a hat. Now, what I also realised at the next town, which is Gundagai, I'd forgotten my – I had my SD card in my laptop, but I had the mini one. I didn't have the adapter for my camera. Oh, yeah. I was like, ah, oh. so the, the SD card step up, whatever it is. So from micro SD to the other one. So then I called into Gundagai and found a camera shop. Didn't have one. So I had to go to the IGA and bought an SD card. It cost you a million dollars for six gig or whatever it is. It's a country <laughs> town. Anyway, so I ended up getting down there probably, it was just after lunch, you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock, just pulling into the forest. And just got out of reception. I knew where I wanted to go because I'd done some e-scouting. And I was like, yeah, right, this is my corner. And pulled up my Hunt New South Wales app and my maps didn't download because I'd previously done it and then didn't check that they did it. I just hit download and then moved on. I was like, oh, I don't have maps. I don't have – anyway. So I backed out and went to reception and uh, pulled out a little town. And while I was at that little town, I like to do what Matt just said, spend some money. I bought a bottle of water and I went inside and I said to the lady, hey – wouldn't have any private property friends around here that have got access to deer, would you, that might let me on? And uh, she said, yeah, ring this guy. <laughs> so it gave me <laughs> Anyway, so I called it a state forest, uh, booked three days, but I rang him and he didn't answer. So I went back out back out to the forest. And uh, anyway, hunted the afternoon, parked up, you know, when you've got the main trails in the state forest and then there's the little, you probably, there's a word for them, but the little cutting off to the side that doesn't go very far. And it just goes in a little ways. I'm assuming it's to run oh, the yeah, water yeah, off the road. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're just drainage lines, yep. Yeah, but this one was far enough in that it actually went in and curved a little bit and then stopped and I could park in there and be off the beaten track yep. and no one really knew mm. where I was. It wasn't, it wasn't a road. It might have originally been, but they planted it or whatnot. So I parked in there and I went hunting. Now I found – I heard some noises initially straight away and that was pretty interesting and it wasn't kangaroos because I could see all them standing there. And then I found a spiky deadhead, a samba spiky cool. deadhead. And it had been shot by a hunter. I'll put the video up actually because so the hunter had left the back. Like I could tell because there was parts missing and whatnot, but most of it was there, shoulders and things, bone-wise. But there was wet wipes. So this thing had been there and all was left a skeleton, but the wet wipes never mm. biodegraded. And I was like, come on. So I ended up, I took a video of it and then picked them up. And you think nature does its part and just when we, you know, go to nature or Whatever, go to the toilet. It's annoying when people use wet wipes because they think they biodegrade, but they don't. No, they don't. Just a little side topic. Anyhow, continued on and up a nice little gully. It was on the border of a weekend-only section, which you might be able to shed some light on why that matters, why there's a weekend-only section in a tiny section of forest. Have you got any insight to that? I mean, it's, it's, it's just a great that the, um, the land managers are willing to even do that. Those areas would normally be an exclusion zone, but someone's convinced them that, 
the work will only be done from a Monday to Friday, so therefore there's no reason to justify cancelling it on the weekend, and thank goodness, because it is just as easy for them to click over and say, ah, three months, that whole section's gone because someone's going to come down and grade a tree once. Right. But it, uh, yeah, it gives access to anyone who's hunting weekends. Okay. So I was on the border of that and the normal place, and that border was right up the middle of a cleared section. So I was just sort of, you know, heading up there through the blackberries, getting substantially ripped apart by blackberries in some mm-hmm. some spots. And I, I heard a noise and I had my 416 because I love big guns. So I was there to put a big hole in something sure. big. And I'd come out of that section back into the pines and I was, came into a bit of clearing. And it wasn't a clearing of pines, it was just a clearing of light. And I just, again, not having much experience, I never thought to chamber around. And I spoke to a mate about it today and he was saying, you know, you come into those areas and you chamber around because you think there's a higher chance of deer and I just didn't. So a, uh, I caught the, the head and shoulders of a hind. And I just saw the ears. It was the first thing I saw. Those things look like dinner plates. And I've seen Samba in the bush before, so I understand what they look like. And it was just a flicker of an ear that caught my attention. And by the time I lifted my scope up and looked, confirmed by self that I could see, and then went to chamber around, she ran away. So going forward in the hunt, I, I followed her up a little bit and didn't run into her ever again. Uh, continued up the valley and saw the black flash of a, a pig in the blackberries run from one blackberry to another and never saw it again. I don't know if it just went down a hole or went to bush. And I had no rocks around. We've discussed that in the past too, throwing an exploratory rock into the blackberries to get something to run out. Mm-hmm. and I uh, didn't have any rocks around. So continued on and nothing else eventuated that evening and I worked my way back to the vehicle. Now, it was 8.30 at night or so, so it wasn't dark because it's you know midsummer. but I was in the heavy pines so it was dark. Like the sun was not able to penetrate. It was that low on the horizon. It would have been light if it was out in the open. I worked back to the vehicle and I had my headlamp just on. I don't think I had it turned on at that point. And as I got closer to my car, I could hear some voices. I thought, no, it's whatever. Like I said, public land, people around. And I get back to the vehicle and there's two guys mulling around. And they're probably about 10 or 15 metres away from my vehicle. And I could see their vehicle off in the distance, but it was far enough away that I couldn't make out what it was. It was pretty dark. I could just see the driving lights on or the, the front of their vehicle anyway. They had their headlights on, low beam. And they're like, hey, guys, hey. I was like, hey. What's doing? And they couldn't give me an answer straight away. I said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm hunting, obviously, gun over shoulder and blaze on, my brand new hat. And again, it was just back and forth for a little bit. Oh, how'd you go? I said, well, didn't shoot anything, saw some stuff. Oh, that's cool. But then there was nothing more. And then I said, so what are you guys doing? Oh, you know, we're just in the bush. I was like, yeah, I get that. But are you hunters or are you just setting up or having a look or, or whatnot? Oh, uh, yeah, no, just out here having a look. Hey? That's sus. I was like, oh, you guys aren't really giving me much answer. So I was like, oh, okay, right, well, have fun. I'm, um, yeah, I'm just going to pack up and head off. Eh? I was going to camp there for the next two nights, but I've t- touched on it briefly before, Profty. I am a big, burly man who is scared of <laughs> the dark. So at the best of times. Yeah, right. And not in the bush. If I'm by myself, it's not too much of an issue, but people worry me, right? If I take the bins out at night, I run back to my house. Because there's people around at night time, it scares the crap out of me. But so I was, you know, I'm a good enough people reader to understand that those guys, they might not have been doing anything in particular, but it weren't somewhere I wanted to stay by myself and and have that around. So anyway, 
evacuated out and headed back to Tumbarumba and just stayed the night at the local pub. But anyway, in the morning I got up early and can't remember what time I left. I was back out in the forest by quarter past five or so and hunted till mid-morning and I didn't see anything. Got up uh, to a ridge, got enough reception. I was speaking to the wife, sent her a text and whatnot, and I thought, oh, I'll give that phone number a ring again, private property number. Anyway, he answered the phone and he answered by yelling at his dog because his dog was getting in the car of another hunter. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, he's Ned, Ned, Ned. Stupid dog. Anyway, he hates his dog. But he, uh, anyway, he said, uh, what can I do you for? I said, I got your number from Old Love at the shop. Oh, yes, yeah, she does that a bit. And I told him the situation. He said, yeah, come on down. He said, actually, I've got to go to town and get some milk and a thank you card for one of his mates, and I'll be back in an hour or so. I said, look, I've got to go through town to get to your block. I'll grab it for you on the way. So I did, and I met him out at his block, and we had morning tea. Spent three hours in his kitchen. He was super intrigued about the feral deer plan and had never heard about it or farming of this block for 75 years, grew up there from a child. So, yeah, sat down, had a great old chat, and he said, so what do you want to do? I said, oh, look, I'm always interested in meeting new people and having a chat and things and always interested in new property. He said, oh, well, there's a spare house there. You want to stay the night, go for a hunt tonight, hunt tomorrow, and then head home? I said, yeah, yeah, I do, I do. So I ended up, uh, he took me for a ride in his motorbike. Well, I jumped on his spare motorbike. Initially, we walked into the shed and I saw one motorbike. And I said to him, I don't know what the weight limit on that is, but two of us are not getting on there. And he said, no, there's a spare one. So we jumped on a motorbike each and did a lap around his several hundred acre property and showed me where they come in, where they go out and, and what the story is. He used to own a large parcel of land and then and sold a fraction of it to forestry. So he's in a good spot. And sure enough, I went out that evening and the deer were doing what he said they'd do. And he had some rules and... 100% respect to that. He said, I don't want to shoot any females this time of year. They've got young ones on them. He said they're at that age where they kind of might survive but kind of might not or doesn't want them to be preyed upon and whatnot. I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'd probably verge on the thought that they'd survive by now, but it's his property, his rules. And, yeah, I saw a couple of spikers and they were in the neighbour's block and never made it way over to his block. And So I didn't end up shooting anything. I had the op- a six hind, a six fallow doe and fawns I saw, so six and six plus two spikies in the neighbour's place. But they made a good contact out of it and had a great time. And, you know, he said, you've got to come back for the rut. That's when they all, that's when all the hunters want to come out, <laughs> isn't it? I was like, yeah. He said, all right, well, let's book some dates. That's Easter or something, isn't it? And just didn't really know a whole lot about the detail of deer. And I showed him that Samba spiky skull that I, and he couldn't understand why it was such a big skull because he thought mm. fallow, he never thought Samba. So he couldn't understand why it only had spiky antlers and then a huge skull. He thought it was an old deer with terrible antlers. But um, had a great time talking to him. But now I'm torn between did I pass my challenge, did I fail my challenge, or did I not do the challenge at all because I only did one day in the state forest. Well, it's it's funny though because it, it seems to me that you reverted to a comfort zone. 100%. Yeah, there's something about, I don't know, is it a structured thing with private property or is it just the whole – the handshake understanding and that there's um I mean obviously there's a security element there because you as some sus people sniffing around I probably would have been in exactly the same situation as you. It's just funny because from a few early attempts at uh, getting access to places I mean like a, w- a while ago you know I turned up at someone's door and like well I'm going to present myself be nice and and there's a few times where I'm like oh sh- you're freaks I've got to get away from you you're not people mm. I should hang around so it all came down to a people problem. 
And I was like, well, it's too much of a dice roll with people when it came to private land, so I'll stick to the, the public that I can control. And it sounds like it's 100% vice versa for yourself, um, which is interesting. I, I don't know. And Matt and I have had this – so I didn't tell Matt that I was down there, and it wasn't until I was out on that <laughs> property that I gave him a ring. Dodgy dodge. Yeah. Dodgy dodge. And – like he's like, oh man, I send letters and he sends scratches. And- I don't know. I'd met this bloke because when you told me about the dog, I went, hold on, is his name this? And and Dodge went, yes. And I described his property, and Dodge went, yes, that's him. I was like, man, I've met him, spoke to him, great guy. Sent him, you know, a letter trying to get access and Buckley's. Man, I try that hard to get private property and struggle massively. Dodge just falls into it. It's just he's been kissed on the <laughs> by a fairy when it comes to private property. That's just the reality. Mind you, one thing that comes to me, like I've, I've got two blocks locally of, of private access. Um, th- thankfully, for just because of what I started doing with myself, that I, I do get offers quite often, which is really lovely. And, um, and I turn almost all of them down to, to hunt private. And it's not because, oh, because the forests are better. My, my, my opinion is land is land. And when it comes to the legal boundaries and demarcations and all that kind of stuff, it's like, well, cool. That's how we yeah, engage where we're allowed to pull triggers or not. But I, I can't help but kind of remove myself and, and look down on the whole area. I mean, normally through Google Earth, but also in a beautiful spiritual way and, and just see landscape and love the jigsaw of it about like, well, where can I go? And then, but where would they go and how it all kind of fits together? But yeah, so but it almost the the problem with having too many random little jigsaws about the place is that you almost feel this duty to say if you're going to say yes, well then you're going to go, and if you're going to go, it's like well more than half those times is because there's a need to actually knock a couple of them down, and if you're not going to do that on a regular basis, well you're either you're not taking the piss out of the situation, but it's just going to be a a little light that fizzles out anyway, and um and I don't I don't love that. So the one the the access that I do have. I want to take all that energy that I spend elsewhere and just really invest it, not just in the properties, but also the relationships with the landowners. I don't want to ever be this guy's like, well, I just come a couple of times a year, but you know why I'm here, but we're mates, but you know why I'm here. It's like, no, I hate that. Um, I mean, obviously, they know I'm the deer hunter who comes around, but I, I, I value their friendship just as much, and that involves time and effort and all that kind of thing. That's all I'm saying. It's a funny topic, that one, and he is a farmer, approach that, and I mean, he was open, right? So I rang him and turned up. He welcomed me. That is the one percent. Like that is rare. There's usually a lot more work involved in it. And I get what you're saying about being able to service private property. I've lost properties in the past, and I think Matt, it's like I explained it. Like when you get one or two, it's easy to service them because you're super keen to get out of these privates. But I ended up with too many and couldn't service them mm. and lost them. And and exactly what you're saying, property. These people are giving you the keys to their property so that you can help them in some capacity. And if you're not getting there often enough, that's fine. They'll give it someone else. I've, I've palmed a couple off in the past, mostly rabbit blocks locally, just because I couldn't, once I had the family, I couldn't get out three nights, mm. four nights a week that I was. And then, you know, some of them have lost and things like that. But the farmer spoke about some hunters that would bring him a case of beer for the access. And he's like, well, I don't really drink beer. And I don't want to take that off you because – I'm letting you on because I want to let you on. And if you give me that beer, it's more like you're paying me for access, which is not the deal. Became transactional. Correct. I'm deciding to let you on because I like you. But once it gets down that path, he said, I don't really want that to be that. And it got to the point where a couple of them, he nearly can't say no to them. And they just ring up and say, 
hey, I'm, I want to come out. I'm coming out next week. And he's like, oh, I'm kind of busy with cattle work and things. Oh, okay, so what day works better, Thursday or Friday? He's like, well, no, that's not the point. That's my property. And they don't really get that and they still turn up. A previous story we'd spoken about with the guest, Ben Unton, was about having golden access or diamond access, he called it, whereas if I had access to the property, that was sort of my access. And then if I took Matt as my guest, then that was fine. But then what he was finding with these people he'd given access to was that then Matt, I'm using Matt as an example, but Matt would turn up with his mate, Profty, and then Profty would just turn up with his mate, Daniel, and it was just further and further down the line. And then the original person or top two people weren't even there. And he's like, I don't know these people. And they just think they can come onto my property and shoot my deer. And he actually loves deer. He just knows there's too many of them. So, and that's why he's got this rule on, you know, shooting hinds and does at this time of year. So, but the other reason I am not super keen to go back to this situation was that that farmer told me a story that happened in October in the forest I was in. And it sort of cemented my concerns about those two guys is there was a body found in the river face down with no water in the lungs so in that state forest so i want to ask matt what do you think i did on my challenge and then i want to ask you profty what's some weird stuff you've come across in state forest i'll let matt answer first all right i think you were successful in not getting killed so that's a tick (laughs) i uh no look even though you put that much crap on me and it would be really easy for me to say you failed and it would probably make me feel quite good. I wouldn't do that because I think I'm more ethical and I feel that you should get another shot. And And not chicken out and find private access. I think, well, that too. I'm still burning. that. (laughs) I I just can't believe that you you got it without sort of even trying to one that I'd... just one I'd targeted uh, anyway. He even said and, that someone had sent me a letter with a lotto ticket. And I said, yeah, that was Matt. Oh, man, that's fine. And yeah, we he did. obviously didn't win. <sighs> yeah. I, yes. One day I might get something on my own accord. Anyway, um, we, yeah, look, I think that if you talk about that you were, it was three days and you were only really there for maybe, I wouldn't even say three quarters of one day. No, not really. I'll definitely, I'll go back to that forest and I was happy with the effort I put into the e-scouting. That's not something I've ever had to do before. I scout my private properties by driving around with a farmer, looking at the boundaries and then they generally tell you where things are or what happens. But I mean, I went into an area I'd never been into and it was what I thought it would be. The systems I was looking for worked and it was consistent with what I kind of thought would be there. So I mean... Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not saying I'm super confident I can get one, but I'm happy with. Did you? So you felt you were successful? Uh, no, I feel like I wasn't, but I don't want to eat a chili sandwich, so I want to rerun, a recount, a redraw. But I, uh, I mean, and I, I say that because my version of success is success, and that comes from a private land. I'm not successful on a private land if I come home empty-handed. That's just silly. But recently, on that trip, it's the first time in my life I've kind of felt content coming home empty-handed because and i sent you a text i said matt my freezer's full i'm sort of torn i don't really need to shoot one and your your message back was my freezer's empty and he's got two sitting there too <laughs> so <laughs> i had two spikies sitting in front of me at the time and i messaged him but they're in the neighbor's place and they just weren't coming across and you know i didn't know the farmer well enough and i went back and told him he goes oh no i've got access to that place too you should have shot him well i didn't know that so i didn't but yeah that was the first time I'm going to say in my hunting career, I really came home happy with 
out neat. Like with, I was, I was content in the experience more so than the the outcome of an animal. And I know, Prof, you've been talking about lots of different things, but you mentioned trophy hunting and things. I, I come from a trophy hunting background. That's my that's my jam. That's what gets me hard on. That's that's what really excites me. So yeah, well, there's there's a lot of sets of antlers in this house. Don't worry. Yeah, but that, that's my target animal sort of mm. thing. I don't know, you know, if that's your your goal or whatnot, whether it is or was or will be. But it's um, you know, I'm not meat is a secondary product for me, not a not a primary. I do do meat runs occasionally, but it's outside of antler season. So, but you but you feel like the two complement one another. Uh, they do now in my current state of circumstance. I previously was, and I said that earlier. I've left meat in the bush. I've shot animals and taken heads. I've shot animals and not taken anything. I, yes. Like when I was a shooter, I think there was a progression. There's a definite progression in my life to becoming a hunter, and it changed once I started guiding. And I think. And I've spoken about it before. There's six stages of being a hunter and I can never find the article. It was so long ago. It was early on in my career. I'm like, I'm definitely nowhere near number two yet because I'm still at, if it's brown, it's down. Mm-hmm. And then it's, you know, it gets to the point where I think I'm, I'm nearing, which is it's not that you've learned everything and whatnot and you said it yourself, you're continually learning, but you get to that point where your experience is the goal, not not the outcome of shooting something. You don't have to shoot something to come home with a smile on your face. No, for sure. But just from a very pragmatic um, view of your experience there, um, apart from just not trying to save you from chili sandwiches and stuff like that, but um, <laughs> that's an unbelievably ex- successful first day in my opinion. Um, if you're seeing Samba and pigs on the same day and it's your first time in public land, that's like, holy shit, that's intense. I mean, I guess maybe it's, it's also because I play like a lot of low percentage games with my hunting because that's what drives me, makes me really interested. Mm. That's stuff I would genuinely write. If I had a day like that, there's three or four people on the phone that night that I'm, I'm telling all about that and we're frothing. We're thinking, oh, my God, you know, just stacking all that up. That's amazing, you know. First day, if that's, I mean, you, you do come with a hunting perspective and at the end of the day, people keep talking about the state forest hunting thing. It's land that you're allowed to hunt. It just happens that a lot of other people have access to the same land and there's a lot of plantation country in it as well. Um you've been able to apply your existing skill set, that's still a pretty damn good start of result. Imagine if you had that second or third day. I think that was Damien's point in the challenge. And I, I don't, it came from me, not boasting, but saying that, you know, deer are the same. If I'm in Canada and shooting moose, you're looking for the same sorts of things, right? If you're in the high country, you're looking for the same sorts of things. It's, you can travel around and apply general rules to, to deer and they do generally act, they do generally act very similar. and. I was happy in my luck, definitely. You know, I didn't put that samba there. I definitely went to that area on purpose because it looked good, but she also might have been laying down. I never saw her and we'd be eating chili sandwiches right now. So. I feel Damo is sticking up for me a bit after the amount of crap you give me and that you've always said, even though that I haven't shot a deer, but every time I've gone to a state forest, I've seen deer and yeah. you still said that's not good enough and that's crap. So <laughs> I feel that. He was sticking up for me in that sense. So don't try to palm that off, mate. Yeah, oh, thanks, Damo. He's got your back. So, Profty, any scary stories? Yeah. Well, stuff you found that you just couldn't make sense of, you know, UFO sightings, landings, crop circles, that sort of stuff, you know, fun stuff. I had to rack my brain as you were talking there before because it was like, it was kind of going down like, yep, nup, nup, yep, okay, maybe, nah, nup. Um, not just because some of it's not safe uh, for for family values and stuff like that. Some of it's also it's like, oh, I'm not putting that public. But it's random interactions with people. Yeah, so you've seen some weird stuff. 
funnily enough, I remember one of the, the most freak out experiences I had once was where I thought, oh, I'm going to do this backpacking. I'm going to go deep in and that's going to be my access to the rut. And I, I, it was just finally one of those first times I'm like, oh, it's all lining up. I've got the free time. I, I know them well enough. It's going to happen here and there. And if I actually get a tent set up there, oh, it's going to be sweet. You know, it's going to be the time. And um, I had my little cheap backpack tent was setting it up and I was head half in, and it was dark. This was about like nine, 10 o'clock at night. And um, I just hear a voice behind me saying, oh, you're Dave's mate. And it just was one of those things that took me by such surprise that it was just like a uh, four-year-old girl shriek and just, you know, but my head's still in the, in the tent and I hadn't had the time to kind of emerge yet and face whatever, um, what I was going to face. And it was a guy who was um, tricked up in all the gear. Like I couldn't see his face because those big headlamps blasting me and like waiting for an, you know, an answer and there's a, you know, a nice tricked up taker and all that and like, hello. Other hunter, because I've got to be honest, I don't I don't bump into other hunters in the bush a lot at all. Um, maybe at like you know the start of a junction or stuff like that. Like you know you've got a whole bunch of people pulled up. Like well maybe you expect to see them, but in the actual act of stalking around and hunting, three times in a decade, honestly. Wow, wow. it shows that you're going to areas that other people don't. Well, and, but it also shows that if you if, when you meet those people, you're like oh we've probably got a lot in common. You're probably a legend. But it's but um but, but yeah it was one of, so I was like oh nice to meet this 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 shadowy figure in the middle of nowhere. Like okay cool. Well um I guess he's camping up somewhere there, and it's nice to meet him and talk to him. And he's like oh maybe if I bump into you, you know ha- come up and see me for a beer or something. But I had no frame of reference to know except for this dark shadowy figure, you know, with a rifle. I was like okay. The next and so I didn't actually know where he was camping. Next day I gone well in and I'd, I'd got myself a red spike and I was so stoked. I was so happy and, you know, right to do it proper, going to full carry out and all that kind of thing. And it got dark again. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm, um, I'm hiking out in the dark and I've uh, forgotten my head torch. Okay. That's, that's mindlessly stupid. But, um, there I am with like both legs over the shoulder and this kind of backpack kind of set up and, and I'm tired because I'm, we're talking about some sharp territory, very rocky. And I had to go kind of slow just to feel my way through it all. And, you know, an hour or two into that, I probably wasn't in great physical nick, but I was committed to it all, so it was all good. And then again, I just, I'm just in the middle of pitch black. I can't see anything, and um, I just hear that same voice again. And it was just the voice of a bloke. Your Dave's mate. Yeah. Well, no, he's just a bloke having a chat to his dad. And I was like, it was flipping me out, like, whoa, what's going on? And before you know it, I didn't realize it was like standing right in front of his car, and the headlights were on. And then I could see his face, and just the door fly open, and all I heard was like. You're lucky I don't shoot you. And I was just like, ah. and um, it was just this weird standoff. We're like, oh no, same bloke again. Okay, cool. Yep, nice. Line it all up. Was that ready to piss myself? I was just freaked out. Uh, he's been one of my closest mates ever since, and he's taught me almost everything I know about red deer. But um, that was uh, one of those things where I I, I could have um, been really freaked out by that and just uh, busted it elsewhere. But um, caution to the wind and meet a bloke a second time, and it was good. It was a really good thing. Is there truth to the stories of other plantation crops growing in between the other plantations? I haven't crops? been lucky enough to find one yet because, you know, I believe the rut's a good time to harvest. <laughs> no, I don't get my good times natural <laughs> like that. Um, no, I, um, I think they're on top of it. I think they've, um, the, yeah, the police have worked out ways of uh, sorting that kind of stuff out. I believe back in the day it was um, extremely common. Although mine areas, there's certain parts... Oh, I'll give it away too much. But um yeah, there's certain parts of the countryside where you can find a dense amount of mine shafts in say forest country and I remember finding a drive sideways once and properly tricked out with supplies and it was a long way in and someone was definitely prepping and had a lot of gear and all of that and 
it's it's good. It's for me. It's kind of good to know as a survival thing. But I know it's it's obviously their mm. their cave. That's funny because um, you guys remember Net Malcolm Naden? Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize back in the day. Um, I'd had three unwitting close encounters with him without even knowing. I quit university in a huff in my early twenties because it wasn't going anywhere and became a farmhand within the same week and went out west and yeah, it was he was shearing on the same farm that I was working at and it was his name was in the um you know the guest register and all that. But yeah, this wasn't too long after it happened, but I just wasn't aware of the whole thing. He hadn't been on the run for long enough. So I believe I'd slept in the same bed that he'd slept in. When I was a bit younger, we'd been to Dubbo Zoo as a family and directly um and, and we didn't know what was going on but they'd cut most dubbo zoo off and said oh police are like yeah something's going on we won't tell you but just stay to this part of the zoo enjoy the monkey enclosure that's a great place to enjoy little did we know that he was above our heads in the ceiling and he'd been stealing fruit from the monkeys and oh. surviving that way with just rotten apples and bananas and stuff like that and um it wasn't until later on we we're like oh okay well that's 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 that bloke this is towards the end when he, um, before he actually got done, I was hunting up Stewart's Brook State Forest on the western edge of Barrington Tops. Nothing there, game-wise, waste of time. And, yeah, I was up there with my cousin poking around and you know, we camped in this little spot that was just kind of on the edge of the reserve there. It was just a little pullover. And, yeah, police forward drivers have been shooting about the place. And it turned out there that Malcolm had a stash, just like the one that I described before, only like a couple of hundred metres away but I guess the point of it being only a couple of hundred metres away from a regularly used campsite is it was a point to come through, nick stuff as he needed to, all that kind of stuff, part of his survival mechanism. And I never want to idolise that person because he's a really bad person who deserves life in jail or worse. But um, it's just hard not to be intrigued by that whole thing. Like how many people who aren't bad bastards like him live a similar lifestyle? And the reason I kind of go into that, and this is why, this is why I started the Malcolm Naden train, is because I've had leftovers of carcasses that i hadn't fully butchered yet of large animals that couldn't be dragged off disappear on me i've had that twice in one area actually and it was just like that doesn't make any sense how could we within three days uh, the hills have eyes have you seen that movie which one the hills have eyes no terrible movie but creepy oh that one all wrong turn people just living in uh uh, mainly horror, like just wiping out tourists and things like that. But um, yeah, like subsistence living that far in that no one knows they even exist. Pretty interesting. And obviously, people like that. And but this is the thing: this is not like this is not getting into the airy fairy territory. There are a lot of people who are like that, and I think there's more people who've turned up that way for different reasons. Whether they just want to be recluses, or they're upset with life, or um, they've had a big turn of mind against the world, or they weren't able to build their homesteading dreams. Um, you know, by getting their own block of land, which is an increasingly big problem for people my age and younger, yep. um, and have decided to do it this alternative way. And people are not stuffing around with them. And I'm interested in people like that. I hope they don't see me as a threat. I hope um, there's a chance to have a conversation. If they need meat, I can help provide or whatever, um, that kind of thing. There's a guy down in the high country that the Samba guys refer to, and I can't remember what he is, the button man or something. Uh, yeah, so I, I know people who've met him properly. Well, that was my question. Have you run into him? No, 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 I haven't. I believe he only spends like a month at a time up in the Wanangatta. Like he does it in like big stints and he's got a camp kind of halfway. It's, it would be the, I don't believe he's actually a Sambadir hunter, um, but he's no. almost in the perfect location where that if you were going hard after Wanangatta stags and doing that whole thing, then you would almost certainly 
be in the territory that he's hanging out, I believe. It's funny because um, myself, this fellow named Reese Hillier, is a um, uh, hill dog. Um, he has hill dog TV online. He does a bit of his new hunting down there. We camped uh, on the edge of Zika Creek down there um, at a campground, which is beautiful, right where Zika Creek enters the Wanangatta. And that's where that murder of those cup, that couple happened, which has made the news in such a big way. Yeah, it's come back around, hasn't it? That was, I think I've read it. The swag or car was burnt or half burnt? The, the caravan was burnt, yeah. Um, yeah. And with them in it, I believe, um, I have to revisit all that to get, get the facts right. But that, was, that, that all had my attention, a lot of people's attention, because they were more than happy to throw out this idea that it was potentially a Samba deer hunter who had done it first up and you know people think oh discrimination and all this kind of stuff it, it, it created a bit of a stir around that i believe the guy that they've arrested actually probably was sam Badir hunting that's why he was there i believe that might be the case but it's also certainly the case that they might not have solved that mystery without the intel from local sam Badir hunters who were able to share stuff about all that kind of stuff so that just brings up this interesting thing of um the idea of hunters being almost in this kind of semi ranger capacity in the high countries being the only people who are actually getting in amongst this hectic country, meaning that they're the only people who are actually genuinely interacting and valuing some of these little nooks and crannies of the high country. They might be the, actually the only people since indigenous were there before white settlement that might've ever even got in there. And to be honest, potentially there's areas which indigenous people could not have gotten into because it's only with modern technology that it's made it a little safer and easier to actually get into some of the actual savage parts of the Alpine, which might not have been possible otherwise. So that's a, a very unique and interesting place that deer hunters hold in this kind of country that has to be recognized, you know, there's a heritage of it down there now. It's interesting. I love going somewhere where there's the thought in the back of your mind, maybe no one else has seen this country. Yes. Maybe no one, maybe I'm the first person here in the last 10 years, 20 years, 100 years. That, there's something romantic about that. And it just, yeah, I, I, it's hard to describe what it means, but the feeling you get of just being in this magnificent environment that maybe someone else hasn't been in for a damn long time or ever, that's pretty cool. And I think that's one of the things I, I really enjoy that about hunting side of things too. It's, it's more than just hunting sometimes. Absolutely. For me, to be honest, these days, the reward of discovering and having adventure in land that I know nothing about and... and I'm constantly surprised, even up our way in the proximity of Sydney, where parcels of land that are so ancient and amazing. And if you went online to try and find any information, there is that much, absolutely zero. You might start talking to the right people and you realize, oh, well, they value it enough that they're not going to spread too much of the word. So you, you are going in blind and that sense of exploration is absolutely incredible. Um, but so a big case, you haven't given you enough um, spice on funny things you find out in the bush. The amount of times that you'll be somewhere that you, you think you're completely alone and then just find a whole bunch of hippies or mushrooms is amazing, you know. And sometimes it's, it's, it's <laughs> great to, you know, um, share their company a bit, but sometimes you're like, hang on, how did you manage this? How did you get out this far? That's that's absolutely absurd. There's all kinds of interesting little secrets out there. Um, oh, and, 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 you know, Matt, I'm sure you'll um, you'll appreciate this, mate, but there's some parts that I've found myself in where I've entered a cave and seen things that have been left by our Indigenous ancestors and um, the very strong knowledge and desire, like, wow, I, I'm incredibly lucky to see this. Um, I will never reveal that location yeah. ever again. It would do nothing but detriment. I'm sure you understand that. Um, yeah, 100%. And that that, that, that fit us through a few other um, bits and pieces like that. But, yeah, no, all the craziest experiences I've ever had in the bush um, were definitely uh, linked to 
people and strange behaviors. Uh, early times of my hunting career when I was without a car and was stuck with people I didn't know very well and wish that I wasn't stuck, but they might very well be listening to this podcast, so I'll be in trouble if I share them. <laughs> but um, yeah, choose, choose your hunting buddies wisely, guys, and um, greet everyone with a handshake and a smile and plenty of suspicion. Talking about uh, crazy stories, can we get into that red stag? Oh, yeah. Like, For sure, man. Tell us how it's that a, happened. It's a stonker. Okay. It's, just give us the GPS coordinates. And just, just, let just let it go. <laughs> sound things out that way. Now, tell us, tell us how that came about. How long you've been working on that one? And I mean, I've watched your video. Just there's probably listeners that haven't. Look, it, it, it came about. I know the exact moment where where it all started, and that's where that level of knowledge that might be acquired, whether through independent learning or cross referencing that with more generic understanding. Uh, through you know reading books about red deer, watching videos, hearing from other experienced hunters, it, there can be a leap of faith. I was talking to a fellow Matt in the liquor store just before I um came home today about this exact same thing, and it's that leap of faith where if you're a new hunter and you and you, you're taking you know that next step, there's been that many times I've been sitting on the side of the hill and you can look at their face and they're like they just doubt it. They're like I've just I've got to do the discipline of of selling days of my life and I'll be surprised one day. And you know that moment where you feel completely comfortable sitting there because you know that something's going to happen eventually. And because you place yourself at that spot that you've just, you've got an extra four or five dice in the pocket. They're more likely to roll a six than ever before. And, and that added confidence with all of that. And when I got to that level, I was like, I've got to keep, I've got to start breaking a new country. You know, the, the joy is not to go back to all these old haunts as much as I love, you know, land that I've developed a relationship with before to be like, well, no, I, I'm interested in that land. And all of my learning would suggest that the formula applies in exactly the same way. And I think it's just, it, it was just some muttering. I think someone at work's like, oh, you yeah, know, I remember someone said they saw a deer up that way, you know, 10 years ago. Or, and then someone said that in an area adjacent to that area, I was like, oh, you know, way back in the day, one of those, a deer that shot out of that region um, was put on like the ADA top 10 register or something like that. And, it's just that was all I needed for an itch just to itch away. It's like I'll never f-ing stop. I'll never stop until I have taken it on my terms and understand it. And like I'm not getting a cheap experience here, you know. I'm and I, I never want to come across like you know that there's a, a smug thing with this, but the drive and the obsession is so strong. And and then all of a sudden, when like you you can come up to a lookout or something and look out in an area, and there's an immediate sense of connection. And I'm not kind of getting into any, you know, hyper-spiritual stuff here. You know, everyone has their own different sense. But I know how I feel when that's like and that there's a, a, a very strong connection with a piece of land and I can't let it go. It's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. And all of a sudden from just, you know, being on top of a hillside and just staring through all of it and going, that little, that little bench up there, it's greener than the rest. There's got to be critters there. And just, just to finish the story, by the way, that's exactly exactly where i shot him a year and a half later exactly wow. and but it's amazing though and it's, it's it's this inkling but it's like well like you do a deal with yourself you're like how motivated are you you're like well very motivated it's like so no holds barred you're going to do this the traditional way you're going to work it all out you might have to learn a lot more about red deer in the meantime you think you know enough already just go and learn more and go check it out and what i started doing beforehand is that i, I thought i'll go everywhere except that spot I want to just kind of, it's like, if you think that there's going to be a center of the vortex, you're like, I'll start with the big circles, start spiraling in. And, then, and and for me, that's not just all down to that one end game. 
it's it's like I'll find a lot on that spiral on the way through anyway. You know, um, I'll find incredible stuff. And that was one thing that I found down that way is um, a heap of native fish in the creeks, uh, spiny freshwater craze, things like that. Things that I did not know were in these areas because I thought the trout year, years ago had um, had come through and wiped them out and, and impacted on them and they hadn't. Um, things like that. You think, oh, like, you know, you're developing this really strong, beautiful relationship with that land. And then I started to wallop some pigs and all that kind of stuff. And there must have been at least three... Yeah, it was, it was. It would be halfway through the fourth trip in there, and I'm just enjoying myself. I'm loving it. I'm loving this bush, and I see a twig, like a little wattle twig, no thicker than my finger, and it's like, that's been rubbed. I know that's been rubbed. I can see it's been rubbed. When you're starting up with deer hunting, you think there's a lot of things that can constitute a rub tree, but then you start to scrutinize it. And you're like, well, if I'm not seeing distinct antler lines, and I know where their head levels are at, and all that kind of stuff, you you start to learn to maybe knock away half the things that you immediately think, oh, that's a rub tree. But you get to a point where you're like, no, I know, I know that's a rub tree. But it was the only one I found that day. But it was like, when you find a rub tree, I'm obsessed with them, it, it is guaranteed evidence. It is guaranteed evidence that at one stage, a male deer was in that spot. And you think, well, it all lines up because this is their perfect habitat too. You think, well, but I haven't seen any deer yet. Why is that? And then you start to, Go through the whole seasonal thing. And I'm lucky that, you know, at the whole Aussie bush harvesting for a decade. But if in my area around here, it's like seven years. I, I, I'll call them seasons. I'd like to call them seven yearly rotations like that. And you can start to see how cycles develop. You're like, well, how have the seasons affected them in other places? Well, how can I apply it here? And you think, all right, cool. Lay out the basics. But then you start to get to the nitty gritty. Like, but that little rock bench gets a bit more sun than there. And that little patch gets a bit more than there. And... That little area looks like it's full of feed, but how do they get in there comfortably? If I was a deer, and this is the thing, you, you, it's like, oh, good in the mind of a deer. It's like, well, yeah, you kind of have to because so many of their basic needs are identical to ours. I had a big spiel about this down to the, um, the Western Port ADA branch down near Melbourne. I, um, I got speaking about this a lot, is this sense of if you're ever in doubt out in the bush and you just feel really lost with it, you just ask yourself what you need at that time and moment. And a great starting point is if you've ever been caught out in the rain and you're, you know, like, well, I'm, I'm not just running back. I'm going to stick with this. It might be short-lived and I might have some gear. It's like, well, what do I need right now to be comfortable? And, you know, the rain jacket often isn't enough. And you, it's not actually the rain you want to get out of if you're wet. It's actually the wind because the wind's really adding the chill. And you think they are thinking exactly the same way because, you know what, they don't have all the extra bullshit that we waste our minds on with our everyday life. Well, sorry, everyday life isn't bullshit. That's just how I feel when I'm out there. But they don't have all that extra baggage to worry about. They just need to be comfortable. They just need to eat, be comfortable, survive. And once a year, they want to get it on in a really big way. And I'm all for that. But getting yourself into that kind of rhythm, you think, well, but go to the nuts and bolts. Like, am I sitting comfortably? No, this is really rocky. Where would I like to perch myself down? Like, where would I like to put my elbows on the ground comfortably? And before you know it, like, you're always seeing the, the map in the back of your head. You just... and so everything kind of just starts to reduce it down to 10% of the map. It doesn't mean that you're only hunting 10% of the map. You're just presuming that they're going to be in that 10% of the map most often. Shifting to like phase two of all of that, it's like, well, you know, at what times of the, you know, the day do I get a bit, bit hungry? Uh, is it after I've done a bit of exercise or have I been lying down for too long? Am I getting a bit restless? The few times when I'm in a sit and wait, I'm like, I'm sick of this now, not because of anything else, but I'm just restless and my bum hurts and had a bit of sugar and I just want to stand up. 
you know, they, they do the same thing at almost exactly the same times that we do. If we're getting up in the morning to hunt them for, before dawn till the end of the day, they are in such a similar rhythm with that. And it's remarkable the amount of times where I'll, I'll be thinking about something else. I'm almost like mentally given up on the hunt or just enjoying being there and that kind of thing. And the wind will be right because I've learned to place myself in situations where because of prevailing winds and thermals, I'm, I've got the wind right. 80 to 90% of the time because that's how I like to hunt. And then all of a sudden you'll just see an animal stand up in the bush bush, and then have a big stretch, you know, and like scratch, scratches back with an antler, you know, something like that. They're just a bit restless. They don't want to just sit in that one place. That leads me to where like this kind of all gets really interesting because what, again, so I've, I've started like over many sessions reducing down the circle to that key point, spiraling in, and I really started to find, find some roads. You know, I was finding gum trees, which are just like ring barked, just gouged in like way past the cambium layer. You think it just takes such intense energy. It just takes such brutish strength and such weaponry to be able to achieve something like that with just a, a neck and a set of antlers. And and when you start to see that kind of thing, you know, like, well, I'm onto a big fella. I don't know if everyone's going to see this, but just for a bit of context, I can't even get my, my hand around him. Uh, wow. Can you just explain for the listeners what you're trying to get your hand around? It's... um. <laughs> well, that might sound bad it's just in an audio form. <laughs> it was, it was session dark of- and rough and lots of little things hanging off the side <laughs> of it. But, um, but no, but, but my point is like all of that kind of builds up this sense of like I'm, I'm chasing something extremely powerful, strong, intelligent. I haven't seen them yet. You graduate, graduate to things like game camera projects and you think, well, that's going to be cool. And, and that often gives you some really good um, – you can get a lot of feedback if you leave it up there for a couple of weeks and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's still – it's still what has been and not what's going to happen. You still can't think, oh, I've seen deer on that game camera. That's where it's going to go down. Because funnily enough, when it came to when I was shooting him, all those areas that I had cameras is not where exactly where the action was happening. It was all happening at a higher elevation than that. But I had had my mind thinking, well, I'm not getting any stags on these cameras. I'm getting hinds. And there's like a ribbon of them coming down there. I'm like, oh, well, the stags will be attracted to them in the rut. Well, I'm going to find this spot. I'm going to find this little perch where I can see into two different little gullies and one of them I could actually see the feed area, the other I just know that it's enough. And um, I was struggling to get out there because I, I spent a lot of time just over the summer months stacking up the work up a can, getting the overtime happening so I can buy myself these blocks of time off with the rut and all that kind of stuff. I've done that year on year now, working seasonally. And it's getting towards the end of my seasonal time. I'm thinking, oh, far out. I'm working in that area. It's a lunch break. I'm just Maybe I'll just go down and pick up a camera. I'll go down there, I'll, I'll, I'll take myself through to where I'm going to sit and then I'll go pick up my camera and that'll just give me the boost because if you've had three or four weeks and the work's been a bit shitty, you can you can lose sight of the, the big goal. It's the thing. You know, I, I nailed it down because like that spot to sit was not just about seeing the, the, seeing the feeding area. Sorry, it makes me almost emotional. It's like the wind was perfect. It was always going to be perfect there every morning. It gets that, that perfect thermal but not – that whole hillside, it was too it was too much structure going on. It was just enough that you were going to get this constant tunnel. It's just a really comfortable spot, and I wanted to be comfortable because I was going to be doing long sitting weights there. He was sitting there. He was sitting right there. I couldn't believe it, but he was looking down, so he didn't see me because I'm coming up above him. And it's just one of those things where you've seen that many ant mounds, and it's that right color, and you're like, oh, it's a red deer. No, it's not. It's another termite mound. Oh, and you think, oh, you know, that 10th termite mound will be it. And that's what it's here. But I guess it's a big termite mound, 25 meters away from a 300 kilo plus stag. Holy shit. You know, it's like just 
just paralyzed, you know, just feeling the knees shaking and all that kind of stuff. And I'm kind of glad that happened then. Maybe I used up all my buck fever in advance because if that had happened at the moment, like it would be a great shame. <laughs> anyway, I just, just chucked myself down behind a tree and I was like, I just didn't have much with me, but I had a, um, had a phone and he, he probably got with, there was something going on, something going on, but there was just a bit of light rain, all that kind of stuff. Maybe factors in my, in my favor, but you know, I think he'd just been sleeping to be honest. I think he'd been hanging out in that spot because he knew it was the perfect spot to be hanging out for weeks and weeks and weeks and not doing much. And this is the thing they don't like stags from summer into that period can get really lazy and they get really fat and, th and their meat is excellent at that time of year. A lot of it's to do with them just not wanting to bump their antlers around. Very sensitive, you know, nerve endings and all that kind of thing. They just get themselves into this point where this is where I'm hanging out. This is where I'm staying. And, um, Oh, then he, um, he stood up. No, before he stood up, this was the classic thing. Sometimes antlers are in amongst lower branches and in amongst trees and wattle. And so you don't you see the animal and the body before you see antlers and can assess them properly. And this is one of those situations until I saw him get the, the back tine of the, the, the right side and just scratch his ass with it like for a good 30 seconds. He's just doing these ones 25 minutes, 25 meters away from me. And... You know, I'm just trying to fiddle with the phone but get my best view of him at the same time, finally film a bit of it, just as he stands up, has a sniff around, and I think he did see me. He has to have. You know, I, I wasn't properly hidden. But his reaction to that wasn't one of these kind of typical, like, you know, deer up, stomp, stomp, stomp kind of situations, ready to fly. He was like, he just looked ahead, and I think in the back of his head he might have thought, oh, I'm f I think he might have thought that. And it was just funny to see him just kind of, Look forward, look down a little bit, maybe look like he was going to eat again. And then when he just decided to burst off, like just straight downhill, like it was just so quick that I couldn't even, like, I, I, could, I could see the shape of him from behind, but all I could see was just lower branches just cracking off and smashing everywhere. Like his brute force, he wasn't dodging in amongst stuff. It was just freight train one direction. The only time I've ever seen that before was Samba. But Samba don't have that much surface area with antlers like a, a stag does. He was just like, blasting himself a trail straight down and you know that was just at that moment I, was, I still feel like I'm like well this will be the greatest moment of my rut I've probably blown it I'll try but like if that's if that's the peak that's enough you know that's wonderful but he's clearly that that smart and clever I've probably blown it but I couldn't help it like I was still going to just focus a huge amount of my my rut just around that whole hillside how I was going to get different angles on him. I didn't feel like I could do that same plan again because I, I believe they're that intelligent. Yes, they will absolutely see that kind of thing happen and change their patterns and all that kind of thing. So I approached everything from the completely other side. But, you know, you, you do all this kind of mental prep. And, and, I, and I had a few days before this actually hunting with a friend in a different location. And I've been able, it's funny when you're hunting with someone else and for their sake, you, you, you're far more disciplined with some of your you know, approach and techniques. And, and I, I got him onto a, a shot. Unfortunately, he didn't get his stag, but I got him into a position where he could line up a deer. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm in the zone. But you still start off that kind of hunt with like <laughs> this lower, lowest common denominator stuff. It's like gum trees are really nice and we're so lucky to live in Australia. And I just like being out bush. And if that's all I get, I'm so grateful to be Australian. Isn't that nice? Let's go up to that nice little ridge there and sit down. And we'll go through the method because the method's beautiful. Everything about deer hunting is pure. I'm going to just try all the, the tips and tricks and let's have a roar. Let's have a hind call. And then you hear him roar back and it's like, oh, I've got to stop swearing. But it's just like, man, 
there's just nothing like it. No camera can even record 10 to 20% of what that is like when the like when they're mature, when they're that big, and particularly in rocky country. When country like that is rocky, like the echo is firm and it's loud, it is just so intense. And I reckon I maybe got 10% of it on camera, but I just knew I had to kind of if there's one thing when like a if it's if it's rut time and you got a big fella going off like that, I got this kind of coaching from someone who knew Red Deer well early on. It's like you're not going to be too stalky about it. You, you you cover the distance because it's the one time in their lives that they have a bit more distraction. So I'm charging in on it at all and it's just slop, slop, slop. I'm still trying to keep myself out of view constantly. And this is, a, this is a technique I use a lot which involves a bit of faith is that if you've got the sound to anchor yourself on, you don't have to be in visual range all, all the time. If you can just be kind of, you know, just on the other side of a ridgeline or a spur and constantly use terrain to hide you like that, then that way you can be you can be zipping around like fast. You can be running, jogging. There's something about moving fast through the bush at those times too, which is actually a stalking technique. There is a stalking technique video coming out soon, so I won't talk about it too much. I'll give away the whole bag. But um, when you're moving fast like that, you reduce the period of time that you yourself can be producing noise. So if you decide to actually just take a 50-meter jog through the bush strategically, that can be done in a minute. And that can save you 20 minutes of crunch, 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 giving animals the time to scrutinize, think about stuff, all that kind of thing. But to be perfectly honest, at the time, I don't think I was thinking about it that much. I was just so enamored with the roar. It's just so visceral. This clearing that I came up across was like, it was only 100 meters from where I'd first ever found that um, that first ever little rub waddle. And it was it's such a beautiful thing for it to come full circle back like that. And I was looking up at the shelf that I had thought, you know, a year and a half prior. It's like, that's got to be the spot. That's where it's got to happen. That's where it's going to come down. Not because of some airy-fairy things, because that makes perfect logical sense. Once you apply all these different factors from weather, behavior, seasons, time of year, feed, it just reduces the map down to this small proportion. It all had to happen up there. And, um, and he was holding up there. He wouldn't shift. And there's a good reason why I wouldn't shift because he had everything he needed. He had his girls and he was being very protective of them. Now, if there's one thing that I've noticed with more mature animals is they don't necessarily have to own the whole harem. They don't have to be at the big center all the time, particularly in the Australian bush because it can be quite a ruthless environment compared to, I don't know, some nice tailored Hungarian or Romanian forest or something like that. If they these older fellas can get a couple and steal them away, it means two things. Well, it means you got two girls. But it means they don't have to fight because they're not necessarily at the fight. And if they're at that peak of themselves, they're vulnerable to younger challenges coming through. And mating over fighting is just like, well, they've gotten they've gotten wise with it. You notice this trend in a red deer rut where towards the end of it, deer are very dispersed. And it's often because these stags are like, I'll just take whatever I can get and we're going to move away. We're going to move to these little safe zones or these little points where you're in a sentry position just like where i found them the first time you can smell what's going on if there's a young aggressive stag that's going to come up and try and knock them away from it all they'll shift on the crazy thing though about this situation is a lot of those stags in those situations might actually choose not to roar as well as not fight because they're either busy getting it on or they just know that it's going to attract trouble i only found out after i'd shot him that he'd been fighting plenty and he had plenty of um other little smaller stags little stags that have been getting onto big time particularly boxy little ones that could get in amongst his antlers. He had a perfect cut right between his eyes. And um, those younger younger stags can be real deadly on them because the whole idea is like evenly matched antlers, you know, as far as I see it, there's just 
uh, I see deer, you know, evenly facing off like that. The younger one doesn't realize how deadly they are, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, they can get into an eye, get behind the ear or something like that. And before you know it, a younger, smaller stag has inadvertently killed a bigger one, right? So anyway, that was a, a side note. He's feeling a bit threatened. I've chucked up a few roars. I've done it intermittently as I've gone along, but never lots of it. You're not like pushing the trumpet, just a moan, just enough to kind of get a real, I like to drop the bottom jaw back and give a real, just a little bit like that. And, um, and hide it a bit with your mouth. So there's plenty for them to scrutinize. It's, you're not giving them something really easy. We're like, oh, hang on. I've been listening to my fellow stags roar for a week. That doesn't sound like that. It's just a little hint enough to keep a bit of interest. And he's holding up there. And when I finally got eyes, I could see legs. And I'm like, oh, he's got a fair few hinds with him. And you can see them milling about. When they start to mill about like that, you can see the hinds want to move off. And he's probably trying to keep them in one place. And I'm just seeing this through, through the legs from the distance with the binos. Chuck up a few hind honks like that. Oh, man, everything changed. The roaring was just full on. And he moved straight away from them, straight down the hill in my direction. Like, and I'm like, oh, my, he's coming. He's coming. The one thing that I remember leading up to the shot before he did one more really powerful roar, I saw, I, I looked right down his throat the moment just before I dropped the pill. But leading up to that, all I could hear was, and I, I bet, like, they were complaining. It's like, you put us through this misery all this time. Aren't we enough for you? Exactly. But it's like that. And obviously they weren't because he was coming for um this hot little. Uh-huh. And um, I saw his shoulder there. I dropped a pill straight at that. He was quartering in my direction a little bit too much for, me to, for that to be the only shot. It would have killed him. I have no doubt about that. And I found the pill later. It actually broken in two. But as he was bolting through, when I say bolting, it was lumbering. Really big target. I just chucked another one in him and I thought, well, how much further has he run? It was probably only 10 metres further from where the second shot went in that he was just like a, a full collapse. And I saw the collapse. But you, you just until you're, you're right up there touching, it's just like you, you, you give every um, possible negative scenario the chance to play out or be careful with it all. And, and I, I haven't been criticised for it before, but I don't care. Every single animal that I've shot gets a touch in the eye, every single one of them, particularly pigs. You don't want them to wake up unexpectedly at all. You know, if you've ever just got a whiff that that's going to happen, like, yeah, it gets, gets up you real quick. So that's how that one went down. It was seriously cool. That was a nice quick story, and I appreciate that. Let's move on to something else. No, I'm kidding. I wanted to just <laughs> – I know Matt's got a few questions, and that was a great story, well retold, and we can see the passion in your eyes, and it's just it's, – it's like we were there with you, and, and that's what your videos are like, and it – gives us the chance to sort of be there with you. Can you just explain what touching the eyes means? Just for, I mean, everything else you explain quite well, but just for new listeners? No, for sure. And and again, like this is important where I I forget like some things are assumed. It's like, no, when it comes to new hunters and new listeners, we won't assume anything like that. We'll give everyone the 101. Is that um, with touching the eye, and I I touched the eye, sorry, with a rifle barrel from a distance, you could do it with a stick too, is that if an animal is close to expiring but possibly hasn't, by touching the eye, if you, if you try to touch your eyeball, you're going to blink. It's exactly the same situation. And that's going to be an indication that, unfortunate, that unfortunately, if you, that the shot that you've put in hasn't actually completely killed that animal. They could be in hypostatic shock. They're probably in hypostatic shock. But um, if you ever need to be 100% sure about that, which all of us as hunters being responsible should do, is um, that's the last indication to see if that critter has 100% expired. If they're completely dead, they will not blink. If they're not dead, there's every chance that they will blink. And so you just tap it a few times, just right in the eyeball, maybe from front to back, tap, tap, tap. 
you haven't seen a blink, you're going to be pretty relaxed about that one. And they always die with their eyes open too, which I think is strange. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you can close their eyelids later, but they never close them. They never, like you think, you see in movies, right, something dies, uh, it expires and closes its eyes. It doesn't happen in real life. Or hasn't happened to me. Well, well, yeah, I haven't died either. But I think with humans, it does happen too. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, my own, I'm, the only thing on my mind is some cheesy movie where someone's gone through and, and closed the eyelids for someone, but I believe that's a thing. But we could digress. Yeah. That's the um, that's the tough in the eye thing. Great story. When you're out hunting, what percentage are you? I guess your movements like from a sit and stalk to an actual just stalking and moving. For a lot of new hunters, I think this is a real tricky one, and we've had a few people ask us about this over over the uh, time we started the podcast. Is they're unsure how much they should be walking and how much they should be just sitting silent. We don't need to spend heaps of time on it, but do you have sort of a percentage and say, oh, yeah, maybe I'll move 70% of the time and 30% sitting there glassing or just to, as an indication of how you operate? And everybody's yeah, um, different, I get that. But. And again, because I'm going to put a lot of effort into this um, stalking video I'm going to do and I, I do cover some of that. Um, I would say, not the answer you want, it's erratic, but one thing that has definitely started characterizing my mountain hunting, uh, because I do I, I like hunting a lot of that kind of steep territory, um, is not that much slow creeping. I don't necessarily find myself on a river flat going one step quietly after another. It's like either I'm moving or I'm not. And um, one thing I would just say to people is that, like, you know, you 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 got to know your country. And if, you know, you don't know it that well, it's not wrong to just tramp through a lot of it. You can tramp through it mindfully, but you're not necessarily going slow. And then when it's, you know, terrain's difficult and steep, you can kind of forget about the hunting for a bit and it's like, I've got to be safe here, you know, I've got to rifle over the shoulder, both hands, climb up something, you know, that's that's not the end of your hunt by doing that kind of thing. But once you've had periods of doing that, completely stopping and, and, and it, for some people it's part of a rest, but the amount of times where I just get to a point and think, oh, I'm interested in this, and then before you know it, I kind of check my watch and I'm like, I've been here for an hour and a half, I have not moved. And it wasn't necessarily a, this was the spot I was going to sit and store because like, Everything was telling me that that was just the thing to do, and I didn't have to necessarily go through it logically to think, hmm, do I stay or do I go? It's just like I'm dwelling here for a second or a couple of seconds or minutes, hours. Those instincts develop, and people should learn to trust those instincts because one thing for new hunters is like you're going to add tools to your toolkit constantly, and it should really be one at a time. Otherwise, you forget that you even got that tool. But that's that's the key point. If you've got a whole toolbox, you don't have 20 tools on your mind. We can't really ever keep more than two or three things at the forefront of our effective attention at any one time anyway. And often one of them will probably be something unhelpful and distracting about something that's out of that context. So we have to allow over time those kind of instincts to develop. And I think the stalking is a really good one to practice early on and then allow to develop. I mean, one thing that you can be doing when it comes to stalking is stalk everything. Not just the game that you're after. If you see a roo, you're like, well, how long can I can I be within its space? All right, I'll try and play the wind. I'll hide behind this tree. Let's see what it does. Let's see how long it takes for it to to bog off. And funnily enough, the, the amount of times where I've just thought, I'm just going to play a game. I'm out bush. Just he's an echidna. Can I get a selfie with an echidna? I don't know. Can I um go whack a wallaby on the tail or something like that? And then you've had a muck around and you played with that. and You're like, oh, well, that's a good 45 minutes past. And then you look over you, over your shoulder. You're like, oh shit, you know. Because you've been interacting in that kind of stealthy space. You've been playing around with that. You've um, 
you've allowed yourself the time without it seeming, without it feeling like that time was, oh, I have X amount of time in this session. I, I, I've burnt too much of it now. Oh, was that a wasted period of time? When you're able to let that mindset go and then just kind of be in the bush, but it does take time to allow that because here's the thing. The reality is most people don't have much more than a weekend. And that weekend might not be more than once or twice a year. At the end of the day, um, I still won't listen to people's complaints that their one and only hunt of the year was unsuccessful because you know you, you can't win marathons and not have trained for it. And I, I do put these high levels of hunting, both physically and mentally, in the same you know ballpark as that kind of stuff. You know, like people like Cameron Haynes and Michael Gibson are wilderness athletes, and it's because they train to do what they do. Like that's that's why they are at a consistent level of constant achievement. That does that's not me saying that people who are new to the game have to be wilderness athletes. What I'm saying is that there will have to be some time and effort and preparation put into all of this, and that it's a growing process. It's not just as little as I can do to manage to get that one thing. I mean, look, if if that is for someone, cool, that's fine. But they might have a better experience getting a bit of private property, teeing something up. Hell, if they've got limited time, maybe they can get a guide because there's a lot of people who are in the guiding space these days who aren't just about uh, a guiding fee and then a trophy fee on top of it. It's like, let's see what I can give people for a weekend that is more affordable and ends up with a couple of fallow does or a goat and a butchery display at the end of it. For a lot of people, like there's a huge market for that kind of stuff. I do get asked for that kind of stuff all the time, but I'm not a guide and um, we're not yet anyway. So do, do you know what I mean? Like if you're going to do the public land thing, it's like, yeah, cool. Embrace the whole experience. Become a hunter. Add tools to your kit. And the second deer that new hunters get is always sooner than the first. Although, actually, just as I said that, I, I have a friend who cursed himself by his first deer actually being a 10-point red stack, and it didn't come to him too difficultly. And anyway, the second and third deer, it set himself with such an unreasonable expectation of what this hunting life was going to be like it was hard for him to want to build those instincts and all that kind of stuff and go to all of these extra measures to kind of hone themselves in because he hadn't had to the first time. He never thought he would have to again. There's some perspectives on all that kind of thing. But um, I do find myself spending huge amounts of time just, just sitting in one place comfortably. And yeah, I think it's easier for me because I have more faith in that kind of method, knowing what is possible doing that than someone who's fresher at the game. But um, I would encourage people to take a chance. It's the equivalent of meditation um, in a very real way. And you do find that uh, you'll be more present in that moment of time than ever before if you practice at that kind of thing. And it's an incredibly relaxing position to be in once you find the headspace. You did. You said right at the start, oh, I didn't know you could be a hunter and into yoga. Well, here you are talking about meditation and hunting. And Bloody earth, man. Go hand in hand. Absolutely right. Um, I haven't bought any stretch pants or anything like that yet. <laughs> Isn't it over in New Zealand that... The tights are, are pretty popular to, to wear when they're at hunting. Tights and shorts. Yeah. What's the point? There you go. Maybe it's a market. I started off that way I, I, because I wanted to emulate a lot of New Zealand style hunting and um, it just wasn't enough for certain nettle species and they get ripped. Um, so I got myself some good non-rip hiking pants. But um, yeah, I don't know. The whole – but it's funny. It's, it's never just like the amount of times you'll see some bloke in a Kiwi hut up there Turns up, oh, how's it, Chur? How you going? Crack a big bottle of big space. And he's got this big puffer jacket on and he's, you know, dressed for the Alpine. Yet there's still just this pair of Canterbury shorts, you know, and really pasty legs. <laughs> I, I can I, I can feel them there because I uh, I work outside and I don't wear mm. long pants ever. 
I the only time I wear long pants is when I hunt. And that's only because you're going through stuff that can, you know, rip you up and things like that. But minus three, I, I'm in mm-hmm. shorts. It doesn't bother me. I'll have a puffer jacket on. I'll be rugged up up top, but I just I, I run hot, so I sweat like a demon and find that I acclimatize really well, even when I'm at the snow. The, la- the last time I was at the snow, geez, the, the jackets were off, especially on the ski lifts because I'm just so hot. And if I could be wearing shorts, I'd be doing it in a heartbeat. So I get where they're coming from from that side of it. I'm 100% the opposite. Also, I grew up riding horses. I went to you know, private school. We had to wear long pants at school. I wore long pants one weekend out on the farm. So as an adult, I just wear long pants every day. I don't care how hot it is. I'm wearing long pants. So I don't uh, no. And part, you know, part of the reason is my legs don't look good in shorts. So that's also. The, one thing that kind of just, just to pick on in all of this is um, like there's a reason why if there's such a strong culture of New Zealanders doing that is because they've clearly um, realised that before you think about anything camouflage-wise, you have to be dressed and prepared for environmental conditions. And they know that how quickly they'll go from like if it's a, you know, just say you're going to bust up a spur midwinter on a tar hunt, it'll be very cold to start, but you will start sweating within a couple of minutes. And they learn from experience that if you um, get any dampness or wetness on your trousers, well, then that's holding moisture against your skin and um, you're more likely to be cold that way. It's probably best to actually have nothing on like that. And um, I would encourage, because this is one trend that I have noticed, it's very easy for people to want to buy hunting branded clothing and admittedly they're a lot they're getting a lot better but because it's like they're like oh, i'm gonna buy my outfit my uniform and get some camouflage happening and they've inadvertently not thought about the fundamentals of bush gear and protective clothing that you need anytime that you go even just bush walking um or spending any time in natural areas and i'll never forget once seeing um a guy it was victoria that's right and he was puffing up this hillside and it's like oh how you going mate and he was having a terrible day like how expensive his outfit must have been. It was ported from America, all of this fancy Gore-Tex stuff, and he didn't have a drink bottle. And it's like, what the hell was the point of $3,000 worth of gear and clothing if you didn't have enough water to drink? So before people get too excited, and they should go and spend lots of money on all of our fantastic um, domestic hunting brands and all that kind of stuff, make sure that you've got a list and that you've really worked out what is safe and important and valuable to your comfort. I will always put all of those things over camouflage, and I don't wear much camouflage when I'm deer hunting I'll, I'll wear camouflage when i'm hunting birds and ducks um, because i feel like out of the three things like sound smell sight those orders get inverted depending on the hunting type that you're doing you know and sometimes camouflage is at the top sometimes camouflage is well beneath that and there was no point to you wearing camouflage if you didn't have the wind in your favor and were finding you know strategies to move through quietly through the bush that kind of thing but i just really want to get to young new beginner shooters people who are new to this podcast the idea of getting a checklist together of those basic bush fundamentals, rain jacket, water bottles, compasses. And the one thing about this too is that if you have those boxes ticked, please don't go waiting to buy the camouflage gear before you've decided to take yourself out bush. There's no problem going out bush if you've got all your gear points covered. You weren't going to have a better time just because you were in uniform, so to speak. And I know a lot of people who've waited to get a full gear list when really they had a full gear list early on. They just needed to mentally check what are my key points to safety, comfort, and survival, and then go bush. Just get out bush. Don't find excuses not to, you know. That's one thing I just really want to hammer across, and I should probably hammer across more often to people who are new and approach me on these kind of things. Good boots, for example. Can we ask what you wear? Um, I wear Scarpa Terrors. They work for me. Um, I've worn synthetic before that. I do, I have to admit, I, I do go through 
I've this I'm on my third set of scarpers now, but I, I, I I'm so comfortable in them. Like I've never had hot spots from them that I would just wear them. I wore them, one of them to a um you know engagement party once just because I was like, oh, it's brown, it fits with the jeans, and it's comfy, you know. Um, so I've worn, but that might be one reason I've worn through them quite a bit. But was the dan- the dancing that night? How'd they go on the dance floor? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's but 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 you know that's the kind of thing where people start from the bottom up. You know, um, go get these things tried on properly, suss it all out, all that kind of thing, and don't get kind of too wowed by the um the image of camouflage and orange and fancy stainless rifles. Make sure you, your needs are being met before you indulge the imagery of it all too much. Because sometimes people can indulge the imagery. And, like, you'll see people, like, humping along some big heavy-barreled varmint rifle through the scrub. And it's like, well, cool, I guess it'll shoot straight and accurately at the time. But you having fun carrying it around? Is it the practical tool? But they obviously got it in their heads that that was like, oh, you know, spend a bit of money on something really sexy. They've received false advertising or um, just haven't received the nuts and bolts of all of that kind of thing. So that's why I'm emphasizing that. Sticking on that topic and your, your experience and your kit, what rifle did you shoot your red stake with? The same one that I've been shooting with since forever. I have a Remington 700 and 7mm08. I chose 7mm08 because back in the day I was reading a lot of Kiwi hunting magazines and it was a very popular round over there. But using that as opposed to a 243, it was um, legal for Samba and I wanted a gun that had to be the all-rounder to suit. Every bit of Australian game, maybe bar Buffalo, but... I know people who shoot a lot of buffalo in the Northern Territory with a 308, and they will use that over any of those magnum calibers because they know shot placement's more important and they need to shoot a lot of them. So all that kind of thing. So I chose that rifle. I am a little bit of an anti... I have a bit of an anti-commercialist bent in me, which I've probably got to get over and spend a bit more money on things. But I just want to keep returning back to this point that that one bit of kit that you bought was going to be enough because it met the need, that kind of thing. Um... I've, because, you know, I, I take time off work and work seasonally so I can have large amounts of time in the bush. That means me reducing the spending on things and, you know, with fuel prices going the way they're going, that basically means I don't spend any money on anything except for ammunition and fuel these days. So that's why I I knew that when I was choosing my kit back in the day that it was going to be that one thing. So, yeah, that 7 weight served me really well. I've bought a 44 Magnum lever action since, which I haven't been able to get to shoot straight. Um Although I've got another set of ammunition, which I just haven't gotten around to giving some range time to and all that. Maybe I wanted more out of the lever action than they can actually provide. But I often don't bring it out bush because the idea of seeing something at 100 meters, which is, you know, the stag of my dreams. A lot of people say, oh, but, you know, take the challenge, you know, get into bow hunting and close range stuff. I'm like, yeah, I will in good time. I don't think a lot of people appreciate just how hard it is to get onto these animals sometimes without, like, most people don't have seven days in their hunting year at all to hunt. And um, and sometimes that's the bare minimum you need just to even get onto some of them. So um, I'm not going to – I'm looking for advantages, not disadvantages, if you know what I mean. So I'm going to keep to the rifle. It keeps serving me well. I've got a couple of questions that Dodge wants to, to throw out, and we've got a segment on here, and I'll just play it for you. Shots fired. It's much better when it's done in person, Profty. Uh, so this – this one comes in from Reese, and I mean, he didn't know that you were coming on. It was more of just a generic question, state forest related. So I don't know how to answer it. Is this the bloke that said you're real cute? Uh, shush. Yes, he did. Okay, just yeah, checking. I'll send you photos later. He said, "How far away from Dodger's house should I camp?" For no, I'm kidding. He said, "How far away should you set up your camp from where you want to hunt?" Oh, that's a great thought, and I've been thinking about this literally every night for the last four nights obsessively um, because I, I, I went and took a trip out just so like a 
this is the thing when, when we talk about like before like you know scouting whether it's right or wrong it's like one large part of my scouting was to go nowhere near the hunting areas and just work out how the logistics are going to work out if i'm going to spend a whole week there if i need a quick escape or an evacuation things like that and this spot that i thought oh this will be bomber for for the camp i'm like oh hang on a second in the afternoons it's going to actually drag wind slowly down and I looked at it on the topos and I'm like, no, nah, it's gonna it's gonna arrive eventually into the gully, even if it's two kilometers away. And, and this is a little bit obsessive, but I'm not thinking so much about my smell, but also just campfire cooking smell. Because um, if you're gonna spend that much time out there, you don't want to start depriving yourself of too many things like that, because otherwise your energy goes down, your motivation goes down, and all that kind of stuff. So I got very smell oriented like that. But just to throw a, a reverse in all of this, I have had a red stag sniff my tent when I was camping um, remotely. And it was like 2 a.m. and I, I did the whole hello, hello thing and I heard stuff. I thought, well, I thought, oh, it's like, you know, you experienced the other day, like there's a person around my tent. I'm like, find myself a Leatherman, flick the knife out, what am I going to do? And then to come out just to this massive whiff of the smell and like, <clears throat> and he's off and I could see his um, tracks the next day. It, that, that, that illustrates that at certain times of day, like animals can actually be a lot more curious than we give them credit for. They're not necessarily going to just, you know, put yourself in a, in a spot and there's just this ripple that pushes everything away from that spot. Um, same as I was saying, like with the motorbikes and stuff like that, they'll be aware that stuff's going on. Their instinct isn't necessarily to, to just clear out. Their instinct is to maybe bunker down and, you know, hold tight in the area. They'll clear out if they think they need to. So, yeah, um, it can go both ways. I would suggest, though, and the other thing that I think about a lot is that um, I don't really want people to see where I'm camping because I want to shoot the stags first, which is very selfish. But um, if anyone did find my camp, well, it's like, cool, we'll have a good yarn and all that kind of stuff. Um, you do want to have a little bit of distance from your hunting area, absolutely. But if you are going to set out and have to do three or four um, kilometers of walking in the morning to get to a good spot to start with, that could be a real issue. Um, could burn you out and you might miss that opportunity early in the morning, all that kind of stuff. So finding that happy medium. For a lot of people, it absolutely is in their interest to camp closer to major forest roads where a lot of people go past. That's a safety thing for one. Two, it means that they'll probably be able to network with other hunters. Because at the end of the day, like two out of three blokes that you'll meet in the bush who are hunting are absolute legends. You're going to have a lot in common with them. You're going to have a great chat and it's in your interest to touch base with them and talk to them. But also, because there's a lot of traffic around those areas, those animals are very used to that. They factor that in. Certain recent game camera projects over the last year or two have proven to me that some incredibly high-quality animals are willing to dwell very, very close to high-use camping areas, recreational areas, um, because they feel like they got it dialed down. It's like, it's like the equivalent of Parramatta Road or something in the city. They're like, 90% of humans go there. I'll... Um, I wait till after dark to cross that road. I've got incentives to stay just over here. And, you know, sometimes it's hard for people to have faith in that because they think, oh, the further in you go, this is where the gold is. And, and often that's the case. But often it's also the case that you get these really sneaky big buggers that um, camp closer. I know um, in the pig scene, that's definitely the case. It's amazing where you'll find big boars hanging out, like right next to highways and freeways, um, very close to people's houses. But they've been within that proximity enough that they've got it dialed down that they don't think they're going to get any ugly surprises from it so yeah sometimes the whole not being too close to the game 
isn't the biggest factor. But circling back to what you were saying before about scouting, um, I know some people who've been terribly pissed off about people thinking, oh, look at this beautiful green meadow in the middle of a pine plantation. Let's let's cut a track in there because it's, it's further away from all the other campsites and let's set up a big tarpaulin and play bongo drums and all that kind of stuff. And that would have otherwise been a key feeding area. So um, it's remarkable how often people do that kind of stuff without even thinking and that'll tick people off. So to me, that's a lot worse than uh, scouting in an area where someone else is hunting, if you know what I mean. It's um, considerosity comes into that factor. So there's a long-winded answer for you, mate. He's um, got three or four uncertain responses which he can choose from and uh, add his own common sense and thoughts to all of that and it's all context-based. So That was a good answer. Thank you. So, Profty, on your videos, you've gone after so many different animals and species. What is your favourite to actually hunt? Well, yeah, it's um, it has always been this like fifty-fifty divide between samba and reds. And the really beautiful thing about that, though, is that, and this is for all Australian hunting, this is a, a, an amazing advantage: is that you could have these two peak species peaking in their hunting ideal hunting times at different times you know late february into the end of april is an amazing time to hunt red deer it'll encompass the rut and you get the best out of that now i know samba don't have a very clearly defined rut but for me the highest chance of finding good quality samba and hard antler or them being just the most active and moving around the most variety of bush comes from midwinter into basically early summer almost december at the moment and um that's peak deer hunting of amazing species through the entire year it also allows me a chance to switch mindsets and then come back to wanting the other one even more badly because they are different i mean there's there's things about that when i became better at samba deer hunting at one stage um particularly in 2014 to 17 i was going down there all the time like all the time and i got i got them pretty dialed in in a couple of different areas and i, I understood their patterns and i thought well returning to red deer hunting more How's that going to be? Definitely helped me, but pretty soon you realize just how little reds can hold a pattern in the same way, that they're their own thing. But that's great because you don't want to just be able to apply formulas either way. Um, you want to keep keep guessing. You want it to be hard. You want to know that there's every chance that you won't drop one on the deck, um, even by doing all the right things. Like That's why they're so damn valuable and precious. So that's not a definitive answer. I do rock between those two things. But there's something about getting into ducks recently, apart from all the stuff I brought up at the beginning about the importantness of um, us hunting a native game species in that, in that way and all that kind of thing, the importance of duck hunting surviving. Taking up duck hunting at this stage in my hunting life has literally felt like how I felt at the very start. I mean, when I say completely different, I say like 90% different. Um, shotguns are just such a different thing to, to learn to shoot, and I'm still getting much better at that. But decoying ducks is just the most amazing thing i had a bit of a head start this absolute legend down in victoria named troy Skeen. he's got a channel called honker hunters and i'll keep going on about it i want people to watch his his videos and, and give him support because very few other people in the duck community are doing what he's, he's producing so there's a bit of an acceleration in learning there but man i'm just scratching the surface and it's amazing now like i'll just be going like around town if i see a duck it's 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 like seeing a deer it's like Oh my God, they've got hardheads here in New South Wales. Oh man, someone just sees this little duck just looking tired, paddling around in a you know a pond with some rubbish in it in downtown Bathurst. And it's like this is hard in Bathurst, you know. It's like having those fresh things to kind of <laughs> change it up a little bit, but also bring poultry into the um into the diet, which kind of really completes that beautiful wild food spectrum. 
like ducks are on my mind a lot and I'm, I'm, I'm loving them. But at the end of the day, look, it does come down to red deer again. Um, mind you, if, look, if I could only have, have one animal to hunt ever again for the rest of my life, it could only be one, it would probably be a samba deer. So I just changed my mind. Um, <laughs> it's the most 50-50 thing ever. <laughs> you did. No, I, I, I'll pick Samba. Samba will be my favorite game species <laughs> till the day I die. We'll keep hunting them till the day I die, and I'll never get sick of hunting them till the day I die or the places that they live till the day I die. So that's my answer. So what's left then species-wise in Australia? Everything. No, what, sorry, what is there anything you haven't shot? There are lots, lots, and I was just um, about to get really passionate about how keen I am on tittle deer, um, having never shot any. But one thing I've thought, and this, and I think Hog Deer fits into this bill too, is that I don't have a particular rush to um, stack up a um, a species list like that. I'm more than happy to leave projects, and I, and I want to die with projects unfinished because I don't ever want to lose that hunger or have this kind of feeling like the whole thing came to this rounding conclusion. And yeah, I think there'll come a time where maybe I can. It'll probably be a private property thing, or I'm not close to. It. It's a land thing. I'll find out where Chittle are living. It may be adjacent to some public land. Um, Two minutes from my joint. No, no, but that, that's the crazy thing where they pop up. Um, there's there's some very very In high town. quality populations. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing: Bar Hog Deer. It's like Sydney Basin's got all of it. Oh yeah. Like you just, it's just hard to get access to it. Oh no, of course, but like, but no, but isn't that just like that? That just blows your mind. And but people never seem to think about that until you've learned about it then you realize that almost anything's possible with deer the places that things can crop up i mean sometimes people think that i'm being aloof and shitting them when i say there's red deer habitat up in that hill there and they're, and they're there and they're like oh okay yeah right you're saying oh they're everywhere then like no i'm not saying they're everywhere start to deconstruct their habitat and you'll find their habitat in all kinds of unexpected places and there's more than a 50 percent chance that there's a reason that they've found themselves there over years or will at some stage, you know. But what I'm so I'm circling back to, chill will be another whole thing to, to learn. And like the few insights I've had into their behavior and their patterns just utterly fascinates me. And I just, I, I just want to watch them more than anything else and just drink that in. In terms of like a. Definitely the, one of the prettiest species. That's too. the thing. Like in terms of what they offer, and for me, every part of a deer has value to someone, right? All the deer I hunt have have infinite value like that. But when you take a chittle deer, it's like a jewel. Like, there is no prettier skin. There is no more... Like, like the, the, the the meat, I've only tried it once. I've only tried hog deer once, and I've only tried a skerrick and chittle once. I've never tasted anything more delicious. Mind you, like, I know everyone could probably say that they're local species, like, when it's all shot at the right time and prepared right, it's delicious. I've had amazing experiences with almost every deer species except Rusa, because I've never shot more than one Rusa. My point is, like, it's, it's like, how could anyone see that as a pest for crying out loud? You know what I mean? Yeah, they do. They're a gorgeous animal, aren't they? They're right up there for me to hunt, but they're, yeah, so- they're just such a good looking thing. Like, yeah. It's funny. Like, my wife gave me a lot of crap because we uh, we got flooded out here in Camden. And at the end of our street, there was this chittle stag. And it was pretty nice. Like, I'm not a lot. Like, it probably isn't right up there as far as stags are concerned. But to be just. In my street, not you know, we live in semi-rural. <laughs> it was just insane to see it and just going. She's like, "Why do you keep traveling so far to go for deer? There's one on in the street." <laughs> it's just like, man, so annoying. <laughs> P.S. Anyone, if you didn't know already, you know now. Don't leave the Sydney Basin. It's a safari park. <laughs> but yeah, no, no, but like, but, but just things like that where it just you know, there's this constant offering of, of of basically starting from the ground up again in terms of your knowledge and your learning and and, and chasing something like that. 
that'll keep deer hunting fresh for me forever. Um, oh, I do want to chuck it in there that in terms of like one target species for my life, which is which I haven't had anything to do with, but I know will be something over the next couple of years that I chase with great passion is New Zealand whitetail. And it's not so much just about the whitetail, it is about where they found themselves. Um, I, I see like whitetail on the mainland and then whitetail on Stewart Island as almost being two completely separate animals, um, even though genetically they're, they're the same. My fascination with that isn't something that would probably drag into the United States or Canada or anything. Um, it's, it's, it's just as much about where they live. Like Stewart Island utterly fascinates me. And the, the idea of a limited space, like Tasmania has the same effect on me in a big way where you have an island and you think, well, what would it take for this island to produce enough abundance that it can just su- sustain for lots of people that self-sufficient, homesteading, ultra-natural lifestyle? And then you realize, well, it already has what it takes. It just takes that management to like to allow that for everyone. Stewart Island is very well managed that thousands of people a year get that opportunity. And I think about a third of hunters get a deer, which um, I, I love that, that there's that many people who've got a romance around them, that they'll keep coming back for a small little deer that's found itself in very unique habitat like that. And it's not considered a trophy by any means, like measurement-wise, compared to American things, but just the, 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 the allure of the seclusion. No, no, but, yeah, but this is the thing. I would, I, would sooner, I would sooner have that. I would sooner have that for a trophy. As in, because that's what I'm, if I'm going over to New Zealand and I know I can't, can't take all the meat back, yeah, I'll be eating lots of meat there on the island and doing a lot of food stuff with that. But it, I'm going overseas to pursue an animal for like that sake. I would sooner have that set on my shelf than a Saskatchewan whitetail because I've built up that sense of interest, connection, love for habitat and land just as much as the species because I don't feel like the two can be isolated from each other. And that's just the romance that has taken care of my mindset, you know, and, um, I, I look forward to doing that. That's um, a really special opportunity, which is open to all Australian hunters, and and that's and and for that to maintain, because unfortunately NZ's got some of the similar issues that we've faced, both firearms wise and and it's coming access wise. Is the thing like you know, in terms of uh, hunting opportunities taken for granted. I mean, a lot of Kiwis took their gun rights for granted until it disappeared overnight. I think a lot of Australians go over there and think it's a, the easiest overseas holiday to have where it's like all of a sudden if you find out that you have to have a guide to go hunting, well, good for the guides. But if you didn't agree with that and wanted to have that opportunity, what were you doing to, to explain that that's got a positive economic impact on New Zealand and that should be an opportunity that remains for you? And if it wasn't going to remain in its current form, what solutions do you have to move forward positively and create that conversation, not just whinge when it's taken away? kind of thing. Um, I'm speaking just as much to myself about that because I need to do a lot more in terms of advocacy and get really smart with that kind of thing. Again, I finished on an answer which had nothing to do with your initial question, I don't think. That's great, though. It's uh, the premise of our conversation. That's why we do these chats. They just head down their own path and uh, we definitely come up with more gems than I could ever write down as questions. Look, I think... um Geez, we could go on for another five hours, I think. So, mate, we'd love to have you back on. I don't really um, want to end it. We really appreciate your time. Uh, if you haven't, and you must have been living under a rock if you haven't seen the YouTube channel, but Aussie Bush Harvest, and I know you've hit 10 years, you're selling some merchandise too. So if you're out there and you haven't checked it out, check it out. Um, support Profty with, with buying some merch as well. And, uh, mate, I personally have to say I only sort of got into the deer hunting about six years ago, and your resources and videos have taught me so much. And I learned so much so that when I actually went out and for my first hunts, um, as I said, I, I saw deer every time, but I, I'm 
confident that I wouldn't have done that without your videos. So from a personal note, mate, thank you so much because it's, it's had an impact on my hunting career. And, mate, we really appreciate your time. I know the listeners are going to love this one. So, mate, thanks for coming on. It's been awesome. Really appreciate it, guys. And, and thanks for that last little word of encouragement there because, you know, I do live alone in a cabin and sometimes that, um, you know, cuts you off from, you know, broader thinking like that kind of thing. And it, yeah, it, it validates me. I, I feel really wonderful that you feel that way and it makes me want to do a lot more than I'm doing already. So thanks so much for having me, guys. Let's do it again. I appreciate it. Appreciate your enthusiasm too. You can see it in your, we can see it in your eyes. You can hear it in your voice. And you've said it a couple of times, I'm getting emotional. Like this means a lot to you. To You've dedicated, you've set yourself up for, you know, working in that area, you're living in that area. You've that's a big thing. It's, it's, it's a blessed life. I'm very lucky for it. If anyone's keen to do it, I encourage them. I, I think to wrap it up and finish it up, we need you. We need your motto. End it on that note, mate. <laughs> well, I will, guys. And um, no, the biggest respect, maximum respect for having me. And I want you guys to keep getting a good time to natural because that's the way we need it. Love it. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye for now. If you have a question for the team, shoot us an email. Our email address is the Endless Pursuit Podcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, jump on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. You can find us by using the at Hunting Journeys and Instagram. Find us on Endless underscore Pursuit underscore Podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.